I'm looking for a celebrity co-host of my podcast up here in Seattle called Mitch Unfiltered. Do you have any neighbors? Yeah, there's plenty of neighbors, and uh, they would certainly qualify much more than I. <laughs> How do I sound? You sound very, very good. We're rolling. You know, we, we, this is the tease. We're starting. We're, we're... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I, I thought I'd no warming up in the bullpen or nothing, huh? Do you want to warm up? No, that's all right. I'm, I'm fine. No, I'm ready to go. You want to sing a little? I only up? need a couple of pitches. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> Do you want to get a? You want to get a couple of notes in? You want to sing a song? Warm up the vocal cords? Because I remember, I remember a long time ago, you and I were in. Were we in Tahoe or Reno together? Reno. And somebody called the phone, and you were you were sleeping, and you were you literally jumped up. And you needed to warm warm up the vocal cords before you would even answer hello. So I'm a little concerned that you need more than just a few warm-up pitches. I used to have a friend uh, who uh, uh, reminds me, actually, of you. You guys would have gotten along great. Um, and a friend in Chicago who would get mad at me for not sounding more disappointed or mad, in fact, if, uh, I, if he had to call me middle of the night or at a strange time. And I said, well, I never know. You know, this is during a time, of course, when I didn't have a, an elite uh, job in broadcasting. I said, I never know if maybe one of the people that I've sent out a uh, demo tape to might be calling, you know, maybe from the East Coast. And I'm on the West Coast. And, uh, you know, they don't care what time it is. They're the boss and everything. I got to sound like I'm alert and I'm ready to go at all times. So, so I, I always had that answer. But he, he felt that I should make somebody feel guilty if they called me at an odd hour. Uh, when maybe uh, everybody, you know, the rest of the world would, would have been sleeping. Uh, the voice of the great Brian Wheeler, a longtime friend. Listen, Jason Hamilton is too busy for us. Hotshot Scott, we sent to the penalty box. We called about 10 or 12 other people who were. <laughs> Just 10 or 12, wow. Uh, who were unavailable. And so we settled. On the uh, on the venerable <laughs> voice of the Portland Trailblazers, and I use the word venerable. I've used the word venerable over the years a lot, and I must confess, I'm not sure I know what venerable means. I'm assuming that's a good thing, right? Uh, uh, well, uh, could mean old. Uh, could mean old. <laughs> <laughs> the old voice of the Portland Trailblazers, who've been doing this for how long now? How long have you been the voice of the Blazers? 20, uh, 21 seasons, uh, and there were wow. some that thought it might not last 21 months, so I figured I'm, I'm always ahead of the game. Oh, geez. A celebrity guest co-host for episode 47. You know, I remember, before we get too far into this show, I remember, I think I remember the first time you and I ever met. Do you remember, mm. the, fr- do you remember the first time meeting me in January of 1995? Well, I believe it occurred uh, in the... Uh, in, in the studios, probably actually outside the studios, uh, near right. the uh, office of uh, Tiptoe Tommy Lee, uh, the program director at the time of uh, at KJR Radio at its uh, former location, if That's I right. do believe uh, correct. That's right. I believe that I was there for my first show, and how I got there for my first show is a story in and of itself, both from your perspective and my perspective. That's a great story that we'll share with people on episode 47. But what I remember is that on my first day of my first show in January, I want to say January 5th, 1995, you came walking in to the uh, to what we called the sports pit. I think we called it the sports pit outside the studio yeah. at yeah. 190 Queen Anne, and you had a sub in your hand. I remember you had a sub in your hand, and I, I was, I was uh, introduced to you, and you were introduced to me. You had heard about me. 
I had heard about you. Of course, you weren't around for my dress rehearsal. You were shipped out of town. You were conveniently shipped out of town <laughs> for my dress rehearsal a few weeks earlier. But I recall that not five minutes after meeting you, you pulled out this card from the sub shop in Queen Anne, and you said, now, Mitch... This is the sub shop. It's a great place. And they give you this card. And then every time you purchase a sub there, they they poke a hole in the card. And after you get to a certain amount of holes in the card, you get a free sub. Do you have any recollection of having subs at the sub shop with this with this card? Oh sure, I mean uh, that was that was uh, that was a great trick to get you to come more often because you you kind of got into a competitive thing about you wanted to fill out the card and sometimes you did so at the sacrifice of whether or not the sandwiches were any good or not. <laughs> I think they were good. You you they swore were. they actually you, were. Yes. You, you swore. I'm not sure them. that place exists today. Does, does it still exist? Today? I, I have no idea. I think they gave away too many free subs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, was a, it was a promotional idea that sounded good when it started, and it, uh, it went uh, went uh, awry, unfortunately. Uh, what do you remember as we – we haven't yet started 47, and we'll start 47. This is my old friend, Brian Wheeler, who's playing the role of celebrity co-host because the 15 or 20 people that I called were unavailable at the time. <laughs> uh, what do you – what I recall about that that audition – was that through my agent, a lady by the name of Ellen Beckwith, Tiptoe Tommy Lee said, we want him to come in and do a couple of midday shows, but he has to come at a certain date. And we didn't quite understand that. And we would we would learn later that the reason that I had to come on a certain date was they were coordinating that you, who was the interim midday host, would be out of town. And, and, and it's just dawning on me 25 years later, did they not think that you, <laughs> did they not think that, it, that it would, word might get back to you that there was somebody that was on the air during the midday show? What did you, what did you think? That they were going dark while you were on vacation? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought maybe they're going to the next level of sub, uh, not as in sandwich, but, uh, you know, a person to fill in. I mean, I was, I had already been uh, the sub for the fabulous sports babe. She was no longer around. I got pushed up a little bit in the rotation and thought maybe somebody, uh, maybe even below me. I wasn't sure there was anybody below me at that time, but uh, but maybe, maybe they were going to give somebody a shot. But as a result of that, that uh, whole situation, I no longer take vacations anymore when I have a job because uh, there's always a fear it may not be waiting for me when I get back. <laughs> and so I came in and you and I worked together on the midday show, right? And And we've talked about this story a lot. You were you were warned by many a people. Don't get near that guy. Don't don't get don't tie your wagon. That guy is going down, and he's taken he's taken whomever's with him. Uh, he's taking him down with him. And uh, and you were kind of you were kind of a little leery of the new guy that came in in January 1995, right? Well, certainly, uh, as uh, someone who was taking my job, I, you know, there was an immediate reason to possibly have a, a, an initial dislike, I must say. But uh, but then, you know, I started to figure out, you know, this wasn't something that was uh, your idea. You didn't uh, concoct this uh, scheme. It was it was others that uh, that did came up with the idea. And so from that standpoint, you were just doing, uh, you know, what anybody else would have done: take advantage of an opportunity to come in and and work at a quality station and uh, and uh, take advantage of uh, an opportunity yeah. that was there. So yeah. it's pretty hard to blame you for anything. And I. I found that as much as people would say that uh, this is a style that isn't going to last, it's, it's not what we do here. We're, we're a hardcore sports station. You know, we talk about sports. We don't uh, 
fall off into other areas uh, of, of what goes on in the daily life of somebody. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're talking sports. <laughs> we're talking about who, who's going to be the next relief pitcher, relief pitcher brought up by the Mariners from the minor leagues. This is the type of stuff, type of stuff that we talk about. Yeah. And so, you know, this isn't going to fly. It's not going to fly here in Seattle. It might fly in other cities, maybe uh, from the East Coast where he's from, but it's not going to fly here. But I found myself I'm interested in the, in the, in the topics that, that uh, you brought out that were maybe uh, different than some of the other sports talk on KGR at the time, and I thought that it was kind of a fun listen. So uh, so right or wrong, I kind of took the plunge and said, eh, I think this might be fun, and uh, decided that I would uh, to see if I could maybe uh, join, the, join the party as opposed, to, uh, as opposed to spoil it. And what you realized soon thereafter was I did all these things because I knew nothing about sports. <laughs> I knew nothing about sports, and so you and well, I. That was that was that was a clever that was a clever ploy on your part to kind of make people believe that. But I think it was uh, it was something all people had to do was uh, listen over time, and they found out it was just kind of something that you uh, you kind of wanted people to believe. But uh, but I think uh, anybody who paid attention to the show, the original twenty nine or so, they, they they knew full well that uh, you knew more about sports than you let on. And what started was a friendship that's now twenty five years old. Mitch and Brian Wheeler became friends, and we're going to talk about that as we begin 47. Let me tell everybody that this is episode 47. We haven't started yet. It's available on most podcast platforms, your Spotify's, your Apple Podcasts. you got two shows per week. We do a second show for just patrons for as little as $5 a month. We did 46P this past July 4th. We'll do 47P this coming Thursday with, amongst others, the return of Steve Phillips. He'll have his chat with me first half of the season, all-star game, home run derby, all of that good stuff. Coming up, you'll hear more from Brian Wheeler in Portland about our relationship and the Blazers, and and we'll reminisce about old times. We'll talk about free agency. Kawhi Leonard, my Clippers, will have to make a friendly wager maybe, kind of a gentleman's wager on the Clippers versus the Blazers this year. Our, our lineup on episode 47, Wheels and I will obviously reminisce. Kevin Pelton, the ESPN.com NBA writer, good friend of the podcast, will discuss everything that happened. And are the Clippers truly now? I'm having trouble believing this. I'm just a I'm a skeptic at heart. Are, are the Clippers truly now the favorites in the NBA to win the NBA title in the year 2020? I just I have a hard time even uttering that statement that the Clippers are are the favorites. We'll also be joined by Dan Brecklin. Now, who's Dan Brecklin? He's a Hartford Current sports editor. There's a huge controversy in Connecticut high school sports wheels. The best two female track athletes are transgender athletes. And so other female runners have issued Title IX challenges and lawsuits because they say it's not fair. I asked you to read up on this story. Did you read up on it? And do you have a thought on it? I did, and uh, if, this, if this isn't a uh, topic of sports as we know it in 2019, I'm not sure what is, but uh, it's, uh, it's very much. I can see why this would be a hot topic and one that would have pretty strong opinions on both sides of the ledger, and so um, I, th- I think it really is something that is going to be hard to get any kind of consensus opinion about what's the best way to, uh, to handle the situation, and I can really see the argument on, on both sides, and uh, I know that sounds like yeah. you know me kind of straddling the fences sometimes I, I, I tend to do, but it's <laughs> It's hard for it's hard for me to come 
down on on one side and just uh, and just say you know this this side is definitely in the right and this side is definitely in the wrong because I can kind of see things both ways and yeah. I have a feeling this is a dispute that is uh, far from being settled. And I think when people hear this interview, maybe the interview, the 15 minutes that I do with the Hartford Current sports editor, maybe this will help people come down on one side of the fence or another, and maybe it won't. Maybe it'll confuse you even more. Also on the podcast is a woman by the name of Alicia Rose Delgallo. She's from France, or she's in France. She's from Florida. She's in France for the U.S. Women's World Cup title, their second in a row. Are you a soccer? I don't remember. Are you a soccer guy? Did you did you watch this on Sunday? Oh, I definitely watched it. I definitely watched it, and uh, I think, you know, when you get to the big moments, the big Chips, uh, almost in any sport, I think you can find a way to, uh, to have an interest. I, I, I confess, uh, being in Portland, and, and they call Portland Soccer City, uh, the, the women's soccer league team in Portland draws better than some of the men's teams do in, in MLS. And, of course, the, uh, the men's team in Portland draws uh, extremely well. In fact, they had to expand the capacity in the uh, stadium that uh, both teams play in here. So uh, there's a lot of, lot of big soccer fans in the Portland area, that's for sure. Uh, I like going to the events, maybe more so than watching them on TV. Usually when I tape a game, I kind of will speed it ahead a little bit until I see a goal, and then maybe I'll come back. It's a, it's a sport where there's a lot of, uh, I know the, the, you know the true fans, they love the nuances and so forth. Uh, sometimes I have a little trouble understanding things like I think, I think stoppage time is one of the, the most ridiculous uh, uh, rules in all of sports, and, and I, I never can figure out the logic of it. But, uh, but I think there's, uh, there's certainly a lot to be excited about, and these women are a great accomplishment, not only for, uh, uh, for women's soccer, but for you know, soccer in the United States uh, in particular. So a great accomplishment for them to be back-to-back champs. I'm just thrilled that you still use the phrase, tape a game. I think you might. <laughs> I think you. I think I was the second to last to stop using that phrase. I think now, now that you've uttered that on episode forty-seven, I believe that makes you the last person on earth that's using the phrase that you tape games. You know, we don't tape games anymore. Probably. Well, I understand that's true, and I. But I do have in in my possession uh, in my home. I do have plenty still of uh, VHS tapes. I still have uh, plenty of uh, DVDs. Uh, so, so I, I'm, I'm very much behind in terms of getting fully into the uh, into the modern age of how to uh, how to how to play things back, to savor things, to not clutter up uh, you know one's uh, one's abode with a lot of these things. But it's just something. In fact, I better transfer a lot of those things on VHS tape to yes, something better should. because that tape will probably split anytime now for as long as I've had some of those things. Uh, Brian Wheeler is the voice, and I'm going to also, on this show, I'm going to challenge people to stay with me. I'm going to wander off of sports entirely in our last interview with a story that I've been fascinated by the last two or three weeks. It's the Curtis Flowers story. Wheels, he's a Mississippi man on death row who has been tried six different times for the 1996 murders of four people in a furniture store. Most recently, the Supreme Court overturned the conviction because of the prosecutor's repeated racial bias in selecting jurors. Samara Freemark is the reporter and senior producer of a podcast, a very, very well-known and hot podcast called In the Dark, which has literally spent a full season covering this story and its injustices. I also sent you a text and asked you to read up on the Curtis Flat. Have you read up on the Curtis Flowers story? And is it as interesting to you as it is me? 
Well, I did read up on it, and uh, it, it kind of reminds me, and, and actually in, in a more dramatic way, reminds me a little bit of uh, the story uh, of one of the great uh, sports movies, I think, of all time, uh, The Hurricane, about Reuben Hurricane Carter yes. and all the uh, injustices yeah. that, that he had to go through for different reasons, of course, but uh, but basically trying to get a fair trial and, and all the efforts to try to get that done and uh, still having to battle through all kinds of uh, legal red tape and uh, some maneuverings that might not have been quite, uh, uh, well, let's say a few were probably under the table, very easily could be classified as that. So, uh, so this isn't a movie. This is a real life situation, as actually that was uh, when you go back and look at uh, the history. But uh, I think it's uh, it's something that it's amazing that in this day and age of uh, supposedly uh, improvements and the way things are done in a better way, people seem to feel anyway when it comes to getting uh, fairness on the legal side of things that something like this uh, could be going on to the extent that it is, and the fight continues and is going on as strong as it was when it first started. Yeah. So I think people will like that interview if you. Stay with it. Kevin Pelton, Dan Brecklin, Alicia Rose Delgallo, and Samara Freemark are our guests on episode 47. So Wheels, four incredible partners that make episode 47 and all the rest of the shows of Mitch Unfiltered possible. Daniel's Broiler for the last 15 or 20 years right by my side. Four locations that simply create the best meal and evening you will find anywhere in the Northwest. Leshy Marina, South Lake Union, Bellevue Place, and their newest jewel, downtown Seattle in the Hyatt Regency, Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. The Kirkland Office of Guild Mortgage, 30-year fixed-rate mortgages at a two-year low. Great opportunities for you to save lots of money every single month on a refi. Call Jordan Flowers and his team at the Kirkland Office of Guild Mortgage, 425 425- 250-3150. The amazing premier wealth manager in the Northwest, Evergreen Golf Call. One of the top financial advisors, according to the Financial Times. Yes, headquartered here in Bellevue, but with offices in Portland and San Francisco and the Napa Valley. Check out Evergreen Golf Call, G-A-V-E-K-A-L dot And homegrown in the Northwest, Zeke's Pizza, about to add a 17th location from Bothell down to Tacoma, whether it's a night out to watch sports, like I'm going to do with the Seahawks and Husky games this fall, or just a lazy evening staying in where you can order to your door from Zeke'sPizza.com. You can count on this Northwest institution and supporter of all that's good about our region, Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. It's time for episode 47, and it starts now. Unfiltered. If the shoes hurt people's feelings, they're ugly and it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just not, to me, it's not worth it. If there are people that are literally upset and hurt by shoes because of what's on them, then let's not sell them. Is it, is it that important that we sell them? Why is it so important? If you hurt somebody's feelings without trying to and not intending to, and then all of a sudden you walked off the... And this happened plenty with me. Plenty. Too many times to think of where I walked off the air having no earthly idea that I did something that I did, and then I turned on social media or my email inbox before social media was out, and I had a stack of emails saying, you realize what you said? You really hurt my feelings. And there were plenty. And then... If you had said to me, Mitch, would you like to take that back? Of course I would. And that's all that Nike's doing. They're taking they're taking it back. They're taking the shoes out of the stores because they're realizing that they're hurtful to people. I think it's as simple as it. To me, it's just that simple. And, and life's too short to worry about anything else. Unfiltered. Go ahead. Make fun of our American pastime. You want to make fun of our president? Go make fun of our president. Make fun of... I don't, I don't think anybody in America 
would feel at all offended by anything that a soccer player would do after scoring. This has nothing to do about sipping tea. This has to do with the obvious. It's just chapping their ass that they are watching the Americans in soccer dominate the world again on the women's side. That's all this is about. It could have been a thumbs up, a Phil Mickelson thumbs up, and we would have found out, oh, all of Europe is offended by the Phil Mickelson thumbs up because that they're telling them they're telling us to stick our thumbs up our ass, right? That's they would find a reason with no matter what the celebration was to be offended. That's the way I feel. Mitch is unfiltered. You know, I'm really excited about episode 47. I got my 25-year friend, Brian Wheeler, who was nice enough to be with us to guest host from Portland, even though the 25 or 30 other people that I called were unavailable tonight. Uh, I, and I, I'm starting, as we start the show, with a little bit of a concern, Wheels. I'm hoping you're not going to make me assess what the Blazers will be losing this upcoming season with the departure, the recent departure of Jake Lehman. I, I just, I, I don't... <laughs> Uh, I know there's a, there's been a lot of debate about that uh, here locally about uh, how, how can how can this team possibly go on without uh, Jake Lehman? But uh, I think they're gonna they're gonna find a way. In fact, uh, I noticed that uh, Jake's agent Mark Bartlestein uh, was uh, crediting Blazers president of basketball operations Neil O'Shea for his cooperation and getting the uh, deal done so that Jake could uh, go to a place where he probably will have a better chance to play. And the Blazers got uh, the rights to a European uh, guy that probably isn't going to come over at least anytime soon. Uh, so that was their little uh, reward for, for their cooperation. But uh, but there are plenty of people that the Blazers did acquire. And, and interesting enough, for a team that made the conference finals, uh, to have seven players uh, leave from that squad, uh, that isn't usually what happens from uh, season to season. So uh, I think the, the team feels they, they've made some strides to be yeah. better. And considering what else has happened in the Western Conference, that probably will need to be See. the case for them to be in a position to get back to the conference finals. See, I just knew it, Wheels. I make a little funny funny about Jake Lehman and where do we end up analyzing the free agent and off seasons for the Portland Trail. But I knew you were going to take me there. Is it true? <laughs> is it true that Damian Lillard signed a $196 million contract extension, making him the second highest paid Blazers employee behind the venerable radio voice over the last 21 years, <laughs> Brian Wheeler, or does he have you beat now at 196? Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's going to be in good shape for quite a while to come, but if ever there was a player, and sometimes when guys sign these kind of contracts in any sport, we debate uh, the worthiness of it, but if anybody deserves it, considering what he does for uh, this franchise, not only on the court but off, I would say that Damien is a guy that it's interesting that I haven't heard one Blazer fan say that's way too much money for this guy, and, and you usually hear even the best of players, some uh, critiques about uh, the money that they're getting paid. But in Damien's case, I think everybody agrees that uh, this is a guy that uh, by the time he's done, uh, barring any uh, significant injury that cuts short his career, by the time he's done, he'll probably own just about every significant uh, record for any player in Blazer history. And he wants to be a Blazer for life. So in this day and age, when guys are switching teams seemingly every season or trying to buddy up with another uh, guy to join a super team somewhere, uh, his, uh, his desire to stay in Portland and to build a championship contender 
center in Portland while he's here. Yeah. Uh, it's really very kind of old-fashioned almost, but certainly something that uh, is uh, music to the ears of Blazer fans near and far, that's for sure. When I think of our relationship wheels, if somebody said to me, what were the fun moments? We had a lot of fun moments. We went to the movies together. We went to dinner and lunch together. We were we were kind of inseparable uh, for lots of different reasons, one of which was I didn't know anybody else and there wasn't anybody else that would talk to me <laughs> in, the, in the Pacific Northwest. And that's Apparently part- I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> and I had less of an excuse. I already was living in Seattle. <laughs> but what I, re- what, what I love and I think that people would love to hear were the, my favorite day of the – you know what my favorite day of the week was with Brian Wheeler when I first oh, came Sunday. to time? Oh, Sundays. Let yeah. me just tell – so – I'm here a few months, and then I guess it was the start of the 1995 NFL season. And Brian Wheeler, in in late August, early September, says to me, he says, Mitch, here's what's going to happen. On Sunday, I'm going to pick you up at your apartment, and I am going to take you to a place called? Charlie Max. Charlie Max. Now, there were two locations. You're going to take me to Charlie Max South. Near the airport. Right, near and, the airport, yeah. And we're going to go, we're going to gamble a couple of pesos on some games, and we're going to go watch all the, and I'm going to take you, and, and you're going to be gone the entire Sunday. I was like, this sounds great. Little did I know I had to start at 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. I was used to starting at 1 p.m. <laughs> but okay, 10 o'clock in the morning. And this started a tradition. Would, would you call it a tradition? Of oh, you, sure, yeah. You picked me up every Sunday. In the morning at about, what, 9.30, 9 o'clock, you would pick me up, and we would go down to Charlie Max South, which was a sports bar, uh, smoky, a lot of people there, everybody watching, all the games on TV, and we had a hell of a time. What's your memory of those of those Sundays at Charlie Max? Well, I mean, uh, you talk about tradition, it was not only the one for us, but the number of uh, guys that were just regulars. I mean, they carved out every Sunday to be there, and they all had uh, whatever their name was, the team that they were there to support, that went in front of their names. There was right. Patriot Steve, there was Charger Andre. I mean, uh, so everybody had uh, their team that uh, they were loyal to. And, of course, if their team was doing well, then they were they were out uh, shouting everybody about how great everything was going. But heaven forbid that team not do something well, then everybody uh, you know kind of gave it to them. And, of course, you always waited for the time that somebody wasn't paying attention a little bit, and then they'd see a play and get excited about it, and somebody would have to yell, replay, that uh, you know they actually weren't seeing something as it was happening. It actually was something that already had happened. So yeah. if you uh, if you weren't paying attention, you pretty much got called up on, on that as well. So you had to be sharp. You had to be with it. You had to be alert. And uh, uh, But it was a great crowd, great people. And uh, so even if the game sometimes didn't live up to uh, the excitement that you were hoping for, you had a lot of good guys to, uh, to spend a Sunday afternoon watching football with. And then there was the day, Wheels, the Sunday where you picked me up in one of your nicest suits, maybe to this day the nicest suit – that you had, you pick me up and I look at you and you and I say, what are you dressed up in a suit for? And you <laughs> told me that because of the day that we had a coworker that was having uh, some sort of a wedding party, it was going to start at about 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon and we were only going to be able to stay for the early wave of NFL actions on that Sunday. Do you remember that day? 
I do. Yes, I do. And uh, it was, it was, uh, I, I was as disappointed to, to provide you with the news as, as I was to kind of realize that this was going to really cut into uh, what had been uh, the tradition. I mean, you know, we didn't go for half a day. We went until that last game, um, you know, until that last game hit, uh, hit, hit triple zeros. I mean, uh, otherwise we were, you know, we were there to the finish. So, so this was certainly going to cut into what was normally the, uh, you know, the length of the day that we were there, Charlie. But, you, but, you didn't, but it didn't work out that way. That's true. It didn't. It, didn't. <laughs> it kind of got to me that uh, I said, well, I'm having too much fun as I should have figured that I would. And I decided that uh, I wasn't going to go to the uh, to the wedding party. As, so, you, uh, as you would imagine, by the way, for the people that are listening to this, I'm new in town and there's no co-worker of mine that's going to be inviting me to any kind of a, we- <laughs> a wedding party. But from where I stand, so so Wheels and I had a couple of pesos on on the early games on the 10 a.m. games, he is sitting, if you can picture this, he is sitting in the middle of Charlie Max in a beautiful, a beautiful suit. He's got a tie on, he's got the jacket on, and things aren't going great for us in the early games. And typically, what every other NFL fan does is when things don't go great in the early games, you got to you gotta chase in the afternoon games. Well, well, you and I are, are, are feeling the heat of this thing because it, we're not going to be able to stay for the afternoon game. So I start unching you. I start teasing you. I start, come on, wheels. Is, it that, is, the, is the co-worker that important? I mean, is he, is he, is he that important? Does he, will he miss you? I mean, will he realize that you're not there? And you're like, no, no, Mitch, I got to leave right after the early games. I've got to go to this party. Come on now. And I just kept on trying and trying and trying. And then all of a sudden, you ripped off your coat and you said, that's it. I'm staying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, and, and we done, and we've been doing better. And we already had uh, days worth of winnings uh, in our pockets. I probably would have uh, would have more easily been able to make the decision to leave. But uh, you know, you kind of, I get kind of, and I can tell many stories of the belief and and the crazy belief that it is. And I'm sure many uh, many crazy gamblers out there would feel the same. That if if you are somehow in front of the game that you are that you are betting on, you have a better chance to win but if you if you bet on a game that you can't watch you somehow feel more helpless than ever in trying to kind of nurse that thing to the finish line so so I think I felt since we were going to be doing some chasing I needed to stay there uh, and uh, kind of see things through and I, as I recall I think think things got better in the afternoon I think they did now the question is before we put this subject to bed did you ever tell I don't remember this part of the story I must have known this at one time did you ever tell the employee the co-worker First of all, did the coworker realize that you didn't show? And if he if he did, do you remember the conversation of alerting the coworker as to why you didn't show? I think he did notice that I wasn't there. I don't know if he did or somebody alerted him to the fact that I was absent. Uh, I don't think I could. I don't think I could bring myself. Although, as I recall, this is somebody that would have understood uh, our situation oh, and yeah. probably would have oh, probably yeah. would have actually, had I been honest about it, would have understood it better. But I think I feigned some kind of car trouble or something that you know would have been would have been a little less traceable and maybe a little more understandable under normal circumstances. But uh, but I think looking back on it, maybe I didn't quite know our friend uh, as much at that time as I would later on when both of us got to know him very well I think he would have very much understood uh, the reason of having to miss miss the wedding because he probably would have done the same thing himself if he were in the same position we'll get to the earthquake the early earthquake of 1995 
uh, that you and I were in the same place because it was an earthquake riddled, unfortunately, an earthquake riddled weekend that we had in California. It even impacted all the way to Las Vegas in the summer league. We'll get to that in our last segment. Also in our last segment, what you don't realize, I didn't, I didn't alert you to this, is that you have an awesome responsibility on episode 47. You've oh, got, you've, you've got to name the show. Name the show? You mean each episode has its own title? Well, kind of, sort of. I mean, not oh. a, not a title in that way, but what we do is we look at famous number 47s in the history uh-huh. of sports. And at the very end, typically I, at the very end, I decide to name the show after one of the great 47s. So I, because you were... You were willing after I called forty or forty-five of my closest friends. <laughs> well, that number is getting bigger every time you tell that tell that story. <laughs> it was twenty twenty-five last uh, time? <laughs> uh, Who's paying attention? Who's keeping track? Uh, so forty-seven. So I'm gonna I'm gonna narrow it down for you. And at the very end of this segment, in our last uh, very end of this show, in our last segment, you get to pick which forty-seven you think the the show should be named after. All right. Now, is this, uh, now I, I have to know because at one time when there was some consideration that we were going to possibly do a, a show full time together uh, when you were moving to the morning hours, I remember yeah. asking you, what will the show be called? And then you said, um, it'll be mentioned in the morning. I said, uh, well, but now, uh, so my name won't be a part of, the, part of the title. No, but I'll mention you every segment. I mean, every segment I will mention you that you're there as the co-host. I said, well, it doesn't seem as, uh, as exciting as being in the title. You mentioned wheels in the morning that this doesn't have the same ring to it. No, it really doesn't. You know, but, but Don Imus, you know, he has, he says Imus in the morning and then he introduces everybody else and, and they get full you know credit and and uh, you know and and basically the notoriety so you don't have to worry about that and i said hmm okay that's it so i just want to make sure as i'm coming up with the yes. title for this that maybe no. uh the no. the title will be given uh possibly more 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 of a chance to stick than, well, than it did way back when well we, we're changing it to mitch and wheels unfiltered so it's mitch and wheels unfiltered and, and we'll see Even what, when i'm out there that's uh, pretty good yeah, yeah. And, and we'll see what kind of choice you make and here's who you get to choose well here's I did the I did the legwork for you. I didn't want to make you. Yeah, do forty-seven that. is not a very popular no, number. No, so uh, we start with the local yokels and and Ron Valone and Gene Harris is the best I could do for the Mariners. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, the, a Sonic has never worn the number forty-seven, uh, mm. and then for the Seahawks, you remember the old running back Sherman Smith. He wore number okay, forty-seven, yeah. but that's that. None of those guys are going to qualify. So here are the national guys that you have a few segments now to consider this and and figure it out at the end of the show. Two great pitchers, two great pitchers, and a great NFL player. Okay, how about the Jesse Jesse Orozco? No, no Jesse doesn't. Oh. <laughs> very he didn't good. make it. He was forty-seven. Very good. That, by the way, very good. Uh, how about Jack Morris, forty-seven? Oh, yeah, yeah. And Tommy Glavin wore forty-seven. Ah, very good one. Very and good then player. and then one of the greatest safeties in the history of the National Football League, Mel Blount, wore forty-seven. For the Pittsburgh mm-hmm. Pirates, so these are these are all Hall of Famers. You got two Hall of Fame baseball pitchers, and you got a Hall of Fame safety in the NFL. You get to choose. And Jerry Lucas of the NBA, I believe, wore forty-seven as well. But I think he also wore thirty-two though at times. Okay. So he wasn't forty-seven his okay. whole career. All but, right, uh, very good. Uh, very good. But those yeah. other ones, I think, were uh, I think that was where their numbers their entire career. So that might make them a little bit more uh, yeah. worthy of the honor. So you get the honor of choosing at the end on Mitch and Wheels Unfiltered. Okay. Okay. I Uh, like it. All right. Before we finish the first segment and we get to our four guests on episode 47, 
you gotta you gotta go into a little bit of depth on what you think now the hierarchy of the Western Conference. My favorite NBA team, the Clippers, believe it or not, have now Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And we've got LeBron and AD across the Staples Center floor. And we've got Steph and Draymond Green and D'Angelo Russell and what, Clay Thompson maybe coming back. You guys have your guys, Lillard and CJ. We've got Harden and Paul. We've got the Denver guys. Utah, everybody's telling me Utah is much better. What do you what do you think now? I don't know where Russell Westbrook's going to end up. What do you think about all this free agency and now the the balance of power shifting in the Western Conference? Yeah, I was kind of hoping that Kawhi would end up going back to Toronto. And apparently, had Toronto been able to swing the same deal the Clippers had to get Paul George, then he would have uh, gone back uh, to the Eastern Conference. And uh, so the Raptors kind of missed out on their chance to to keep him. And to the Clippers' credit, they did what they had to to get it done. And uh, they just didn't want to live with the fact that the Lakers were gonna were gonna you know with their with their moves going to probably dominate them for who knows how many years in the future. So uh, so a great deal by the Clippers, one that maybe they wouldn't have made a few years ago. I think Jerry West seems to be the common denominator here when you look at great moves by franchises uh, over the years. It just seems like he's been affiliated with many that have done so. So uh, the logo comes through again. He was my favorite player growing up as a, as a Laker fan. Uh, so uh, so I still great respect for what he's doing, even as uh, not, not necessarily in the full-time capacity that he used to be as a general manager with the Lakers, but still finding a way to you know to, to carve out his influence. So, uh, so great move by the Clippers, and I think it puts them uh, right there with the Lakers. And the Lakers obviously have, aren't done with their roster, kind of filling it in. But, um, but I think uh, they're going to do a better job. They can't do any worse than they did last year, kind of trying to surround LeBron with some guys that uh, can make things work. So, I think they'll uh, they'll be better off in that respect. LeBron probably won't be hurt as much as he was last season. He had never been as hurt that much really in his whole career. Anthony Davis will be reached charge, but uh, I'm anxious to see what the Clippers are able to do. Uh, they were a pretty good team even without uh, getting uh, the guys that they've gotten, so right, right, from that standpoint right. uh, they should be able to take so who's uh, the, the next step. So who's the best? Well, I, think the Clippers are, I think the Clippers are the best. I do think that uh, the Lakers are, are up there, but I do think Utah did make some great moves, and kind of quietly that team, Dennis Lindsay, their general manager every year seems to make some bold moves, and if Mike Conley is healthy, uh, he's a guy that uh, could really be a, a, a difference maker for that team, but I think the Blazers feel pretty good about where they're at, so it's going to be an extremely competitive Western Conference, and uh, and it seems like it is all, every year, but with the moves that are made, that seems like a lot of great players are ending up in the West, uh, even more so than normal, so I expect that uh, the balance of power is going to be in the Western Conference after the Eastern Conference won the uh, championship last year. Well, so you think the Clippers are the best team, and I it has to be, I guess what I don't understand that you guys that are in the NBA and follow this closely understand. I, look, I know that the Clippers made the playoffs. They won a couple of games from the Warriors in the first round, and they were a nice kind of a feel-good story. I guess what you're trying to tell me, certainly you don't think Kawhi Leonard and Paul George as a duo is better than LeBron James and Anthony Davis. I can't believe you think that. As great as Kawhi is and as good as Paul George is. LeBron and Anthony Davis, when you think inside, outside, you think of that duo. I don't think that there's – I'm not sure there's ever been a better – duo than that I guess what you're trying to tell me what everybody's trying to tell me is it's the other guys that the Clippers other guys outside of the duo is better much better than the Lakers other guys and better than all these other teams that have duos and then have support their team is deeper and more talent even though they got rid of Shea Gilgis Alexander and all these draft choices 
the Clippers' other guys are formidable. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yeah, although I do have some concern. I mean, two of the primary positions that uh, everybody seems to think you have to have to be a successful uh, team in the NBA, ultimately, if you think about championships, point guard and, uh, and center. I just don't know if, uh, if you're going to get by with the Zubats as your, as your primary center, and that's really who they have right now with the Clippers. And Patrick Beverly goes from being a great, great backup. I just don't know if he's a top-flight uh, you know, starting point guard anymore in this league, but he has to be uh, in terms of the moves that they made by getting rid of Alexander, who they didn't want to trade, but uh, obviously uh, the Thunder were really smart enough to hold out uh, for him in the deal. So I think those are going to be the question marks from the Clippers' perspective, but I think all the other positions they've got filled very, very nicely, and they have some depth at a lot of the positions too. So I think that's what makes them strong, but not a team that has, uh, you know, has no holes, but I think when you're looking at teams like the Clippers and Lakers, it seems like they always find a way to, uh, when they have a good team anyway, they find a way to get that key uh, contributor maybe at the buyout deadline. I think the buyout situation is the worst thing in the NBA because uh, teams all of a sudden get a chance, really good teams that maybe are cap-strapped, uh, they all of a sudden can pick up a guy, uh, to the, 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 a team that is a lesser club that isn't going to make the playoffs, they decide they're going to buy out a guy that's a pretty good, pretty good player, this guy all of a sudden has a chance to choose whatever team he's going to go to, naturally picks a quality team that has a chance to win a championship, and usually it's a team like uh, the Lakers in the past, and maybe it'll be the Clippers this time around. The Blazers, for the first time ever, benefited in that respect when they got in his camp. Uh, last season. It's the first time I thought the buyout thing was a good idea, but actually most of the time I think it's a terrible idea because great clubs that don't have any cap room seem to get better, and I have a feeling that even if the Lakers and Clippers are looking for something uh, as they get toward you know the latter part of the season, that the buyout time might yeah. enable them to fill in that roster to get to even better as they get toward playoff time. Well, if we're trying to make a few dollars in Ve- if you and I are going to Reno anytime soon, or we're going to Vegas, and I know that I'm rooting for the Clippers, but if you're talking about good deals on the board. I'm looking at the numbers right now uh, on the computer in front of me wheels. The Clippers 3 to 1, Milwaukee 4 to 1, the Lakers 6 to 1, Philadelphia 7 to 1, Houston 10 to 1, then comes Golden State and Utah at 12 to 1. And and here's what I and I, I don't know, maybe you're going to slap me around and tell me I'm wrong. If I can get the Golden State Warriors at 12 to 1, 12 to 1 to win the NBA Finals, if you, if you could tell me that Clay Thompson could come back, let's say, for the postseason, and they're going to have Steph Curry, who knows how to win titles, Draymond Green, who knows how to win titles, D'Angelo Russell, who's supposed to be very, very good, maybe Clay comes back at the end of the year and into the postseason, you're, you're going to give me 12 to 1 on my money on that group? You don't think that that group could somehow get hot in the playoffs and win the NBA championship wheels? Well, I think they could, and I think uh, they were they were having fun trying to prove to everybody that they didn't necessarily need Kevin Durant to win a championship uh, this time around, and they almost did it. And so uh, I think that uh, they're a very proud group and a group that uh, uh, will be motivated once again to show that uh, the championship window has not closed for them. So uh, yeah, I think I think if you're going to take a, a flyer on somebody, uh, there's a lot there's a lot worse teams that haven't proven anything that uh, that yeah. you could choose to uh, to yeah. put your money on than a team like the Warriors that are still going to have, as you say, a lot of of the people that have been responsible for their championship success to this point in time. And, and it's pretty rare that a championship caliber team goes in with as much to prove as this Warriors team will be. And I think they love the fact that uh, so many people have forgotten them and, uh, and written them off as being a championship contender anymore. I think they feel that they're going to have every opportunity to prove people wrong. And, and I think uh, when they get Clay Thompson back and he's healthy and he's going to be pretty fresh when he comes back later in the season, uh, I think they could be a very, very dangerous team come yeah. playoff time. That's the voice of Brian Wheeler. He's also 
the voice, the 21-year voice of the Portland Trailblazers, well-known around the NBA as one of, if not the very best, radio play-by-play man in the NBA. He's been a friend of mine for 25 years. He's been willing to co-host this episode 47 of Mitch and Wheels Unfiltered after I called 55 or 60 of my uh, of my favorite <laughs> friends, and, and none of them were available on this Sunday when we're recording. I've got four really interesting interviews, I think. Some are sports, some are non-sports. We've got World Cup, we've got NBA, we've got incredible headline stories outside the world of sports. We've got a blossoming controversy, not only in the state of Connecticut, but around the country in terms of transgenders and their and their participation, especially in high school sports and what we're going to do uh, to make everything fair for everybody, which I'm not sure that there is a correct answer. We're going to do all of that on episode 47. Wheels, if you work or live in downtown Seattle, you now have the opportunity to discover Seattle's most unique downtown bar, the Rick House Whiskey Bar, located at the downtown Daniels Broiler in the brand new Hyatt Regency. The Rick House Whiskey Bar, a high-end location featuring over 150 of the finest spirits from around the world. You'll have access to American, Scotch, Irish, Japanese whiskeys and bourbons. The Rick House Whiskey Bar with two happy hours from 4 p.m. to 6.30 and then 9 p.m. to close where you can take $4 off of any of the Daniels classics like filet mignon steak strips, classic steakhouse burgers, bacon-wrapped scallops, my favorite, Dungeness crab legs, fried calamari, and much, much more. Experience a world-class downtown bar, the Rick House Whiskey Bar. Downtown Daniels at the Hyatt Regency, a world-class steakhouse. Unfiltered. Ladies and gentlemen, the deal apparently is done. Kawhi Leonard has made his decision, and he's heading to L.A. But it's the Clippers, not the Lakers, who are getting the top NBA free agent. That according to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski. Now listen to this. To land Leonard, the Clippers also made a deal with the Oklahoma City Thunder for Paul George. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody. All right, I didn't want to do uh, episode 47 without getting some uh, some thoughts from our buddy Kevin Pelton of ESPN, ESPN.com, the fabulous Pelton podcast. He's uh, he's at the Summer League in Las Vegas. So let's start with the most recent news, Kevin, and then work our way back. Russell Westbrook, is he going to be in Oklahoma City for the, uh, for the following season or is somebody going to go out and grab him? And if it is going to be somebody, who's it going to be? And can they, can they take on his salary or do they have to dump a bunch of salary to be able to take on Westbrook? I'd be really surprised if he were in Oklahoma City by the end of this calendar year. I mean, I think there's a chance that it might not happen this summer, depending on, you know, if one of the teams that's most interested, you know, I think the Knicks are probably the most logical fit for him because of the fact that they weren't able to land a star this summer. And one of the things I think they realized is it's a lot easier to do that if you already have a star and have him recruiting to join you, you know, whether that's Kyrie Irving or Kawhi Leonard already having committed his free agents and recruiting a second player to join them, or whether it's someone already on the roster going out and doing that. 
that. But they couldn't make that trade because of the players that they've signed in free agency when they kind of went to their plan B until December 15th. Same, you know, generally with uh, Phoenix, which I think would be another team that would make some sense for him. So, you know, I think it's possible that the market could be better for Westbrook if the Thunder wave. But I, I don't think it's going to be a long period of time. But you're, you're talking about teams that, not are, that are not in position to win right away. Isn't the whole point of him leaving Oklahoma City to go someplace where he has to, a chance to win an NBA championship? I'm sure that'd be his goal. And, you know, the question is just which of those teams are interested. So, you know, Houston uh, has been reported as a, a potential prime landing spot, would reunite him with James Harden. Uh, but, you know, my, my ESPN colleague Tim McMahon had a story earlier Sunday that, uh, you know, detailed why they think it's pretty unlikely that's going to happen, the Rockets organization, because, you know, Chris Paul would probably have to be traded one way or another. You're not going to have both Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook alongside James Harden, especially because, you know, if you did keep him, it would basically just be those three guys and a bunch of minimum players on the roster. So finding a taker for Chris Paul is, is much more difficult. How popular is Russell Westbrook? with his peers. Take Kawhi Leonard for an example. It was always Paul George, right? Was there ever a chance that it could have been Russell Westbrook from Oklahoma City instead of Paul George? Tough to say. I mean, I think probably there was a case where, you know, George is much more in his prime, similar in age to Kawhi Leonard and made more sense, I think, as a long-term partnership than Westbrook would as someone who's a couple of years older. And, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the player. Like, obviously, some players are not going to play with, want to play with someone so ball-dominant, but he has shown when he's been alongside Durant and then last season with Paul George, the willingness to kind of step back and cede some of that uh, territory to a second player. I mean, George, you know, for a long period of time this year was really kind of Oklahoma City's first option in offense. And I, I don't think that, you know, I don't get the sense that his desire to go play with Kawhi Leonard had anything to do with Russell Westbrook from, you know, people who are close to the situation, but, uh, you know, the reporting close to the situation, but, you know, just really a unique opportunity for him to play back in L.A in Southern California with another star. All right, so Kevin Pelton is our guest. So do me a favor and digest all of this for me. Everybody is making, it seems like everybody is making the Clippers the favorite now that they've got the big deal done with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. I don't know. I, I mean, I want to believe that. Maybe I'm just a negative Nelly here. I want to believe that. I'm a Clippers, I'm a Clippers fan, and I like Kawhi Leonard, and I like Paul George, and I feel like the Clippers had to do what they did. They just had to do what they did, even with the incredible package that they sent to Oklahoma City for Paul George. Having said all that, you know, I look at LeBron James and Anthony Davis. I compare them to Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. I see, I see a guy on the perimeter. I see a guy on the inside. I see some more balance. I, there are other teams that I think are still very, very good. I wonder if Klay Thompson's going to play late in the season, maybe in the playoffs, and if he does – a Golden State team could have Steph and Clay and D'Angelo Russell and Draymond Green. I still think Golden State knows how to win, could win with that group. I, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time. Maybe you're going to tell me this is really all about the Clippers' other guys versus the Lakers' other guys versus these other teams' other guys. That, is that pretty much what it is? Everybody loves the Clippers' depth and other guys outside of the big two stars? Kevin? You have guessed it correctly. I mean, particularly in contrast with the Lakers, who, you know, once they ha didn't get Kawhi Leonard, their options were much more limited in free agency. They did get 
Danny Green, who's a really nice pickup, was the best 3 and D role player on the market. He'll fit well there into what they need. But, you know, their point guard situation is, is particularly weak. They they brought back Rajon Rondo. They brought in Quinn Cook, who, you know, is uh, a useful role player, but really limited, as we saw when he was forced into a larger role during the NBA Finals because of the Warriors' injuries. Uh, they've also got Alex Caruso, who was on a two-way for them the last couple of years. But, you know, their finishing lineup probably isn't going to include any of those guys. And, you know, they're still not really sure who the fifth guy would be if you assume that it's going to be Danny Green, Kuzma, AD, and LeBron. Who's the fifth guy who finishes games with them? Maybe it's DeMarcus Cousins if things work out. But a lot of more question marks, I think, about the Lakers' depth, whereas the Clippers have kind of carefully been managing their cap and, you know, the, the back end of their roster. They've got great contracts for Montrez Harrell, Lou Williams, who finished in the, both of whom in the top uh, three of six-man award voting last year. So you've got this great second unit. You've got the depth to support Kawhi resting games in the regular season. So I really like this mix. And the Warriors, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously they, as you said, know how to win. They're going to still have great star power when Clay Thompson gets back with him, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green. But, you know, their depth now is going to be really limited as well because of the fact that by making this sign-and-trade for D'Angelo Russell as part of the Kevin Durant signing, they hard-capped themselves. They can't spend more than $138.9 million under any circumstances. And that forced them to let Andre Iguodala go, and they've just been able to replace him basically with guys making the minimum. So who's the finishing line? You call it the finishing lineup. Who's the finishing lineup for the Clippers night tonight? It would be the two big guys, Patrick Beverly, Lou, and Montrez Harrell. Is that the five that would be on the floor at the end of the games? Yeah, I think it might depend from change from night to night, depending on the matchups. You've also got Landry Shamit in oh, yeah. there to provide oh, yeah. more yeah. floor spacing. He was really good for them in that playoff series against the Warriors as a rookie. So, you know, I think it was crucial for them to hold on to him in that uh, Paul George trade. Yeah, they've, they've got a few options, though. Uh, you know, they've also got Maurice Harkless from Portland, uh, who was a starter for the Blazers last season, could be in the mix on some nights if you need a third interchangeable wing defender to, to switch and, you know, really have maximum defensive versatility. They can throw a lot of different looks and I like it. Okay. What about the future for the Clippers with all of the the draft choices that they sent to Oklahoma City? I I realize that many of those draft choices, at least a handful of those first rounders were not their own. They were first first round draft choices that they had accumulated over the last couple of years, right? Yeah, they sent two of the picks uh, from Miami that one of them that they had gotten just last week in the Harkless trade. The other one came as part of the Tobias Harris trade at the trade deadline. But uh, three of their own first round picks, all of them unprotected, two pick swaps in the years between that. The, the Thunder will control the Clippers pick every year from 2022 through 2026. And you know, I think the wise move from the Thunder standpoint was you push that those picks as far out into the future as possible because that means the better chance that either Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are right. no longer in their prime and you're no longer a contender, or even with the way that players move around at this point, three-year contracts plus a player option, presumably, you know, maybe they're not even in with the Clippers anymore. So it's definitely a risk, but you know, I think one you have to take when you've got this good of a chance of winning a championship. Right. And so how do they build upon what they have now in future years, or do they not? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be mostly about maintaining this group. And, you know, the nice thing is with Steve Ballmer as your owner, I don't think there's any going to be any concern when they eventually do go into the luxury tax about being willing to pay that bill to keep this group together. Right. How about the Eastern Conference? Milwaukee and Philadelphia, Kevin, as it stands right now? Yeah, I think Milwaukee is uh, is my favorite. We'll see about Philadelphia. They're much more of a wild card after, you know, dramatically reshaping their starting lineup by bringing in Al Horford, bringing 
bringing in Josh Richardson in the sign and trade, sending Jimmy Butler to Miami. Uh, they're bigger. They're somewhat more versatile defensively. I really like Josh Richardson as a pickup for them, but they also don't have now the closer that they had in Jimmy Butler. Uh, that's a tough thing for Joel Embiid to be a, you know, a go-to guy late in games. Ben Simmons was not ready for that responsibility with his non-shooting in the playoffs. So that's something they're going to have to get figured out between now and next May. All right. Any summer league thoughts? Anybody surprise you? Anything that's uh, worthy of mention? And where were you for the earthquake? I, I was there in the uh, in the stands, uh, a little bit off the court, and uh, you can definitely feel it shaking. It's been a while. I mean, since I we haven't experienced one in Seattle since 2001, so that was uh, an interesting experience. What a night between that and the, then the Kawhi and Paul George news breaking later. A very, a very memorable night. But I, I would say that you know all the excitement over free agency has, has almost overshadowed summer league, and that wouldn't be the case if Zion Williamson were playing. But his summer league ending after basically one quarter of action because because he uh, suffered a knee bruise with some knee-to-knee contact. That's taken a lot of the air out of it, although you know, we'll see uh, at some point the guys. there was a number of draft picks, high draft picks, including DeAndre Hunter, the number four overall pick, who was in that Anthony Davis trade. Uh, because those trades weren't completed until yesterday, they haven't been able to play thus far. Uh, they may be able to start seeing action on Sunday, and that's uh, you know going to change going to change things in that maybe a little bit more juice. But Saturday was really surprisingly low key summer league affair for the first weekend. Kevin, you're from Seattle. I'm from Seattle. We ran around watching the Porter Boys when they were in high school, thinking that they were going to the University of Washington. You remember it? See, that seems like ten years ago now. I'm not not sure Michael Porter has played a game since I saw him play in high school. Maybe he played like a quarter of a game in college. Honestly, I think I've played more basketball than Michael Porter has since I saw him play in high school uh, on that, what, Nathan Hale team. What's going to become of the Porters, uh, of the Porter boys? I'm not too worried about Michael. I mean, you know, all the reports, well, generally the reports of him working out, playing three-on-three after practices, that sort of thing last year in Denver as he was working back from back surgery were very positive. It's a bummer, as with Zion, that he uh, isn't able to play in summer league. He just suffered kind of a minor knee injury that, you know, he might miss a week or two during the regular season. It wouldn't be a big deal, but because of the fact that it came right before summer league, it means we're not going to see him now, you know, in, in a live NBA setting until uh, the preseason in October, but uh, you know I think his future is still bright, and Denver is is very much counting on him to help take them to the next level. That's a team that you know was second in the West last season, won a playoff series, haven't really done anything so far this summer other than extend Jamal Murray's contract, and I think that's partially because they look at Porter as their big pickup. John uh, Tay, tougher to say. I mean, you know, devastating timing of that second ACL injury for him. Uh, chose not to go into the draft after his freshman season when he played with his brother at Mizzou and then went undrafted this year. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a team signs him to a two-way contract at some point here with uh, for two years and lets him rehab this year in hopes that a couple years down the line you get the, the prospect who people thought was for sure going to be a first-round pick before those injuries. All right, Kevin Pelton squeezing us in from Las Vegas. You can follow him on Twitter, obviously, at kpelton, P-E-L-T-O-N. Does a terrific job for ESPN and ESPN.com. And also check out his fan fabulous Pelton cast, which also can be followed on Twitter at Pelton cast, P E L T O N C A S T. Well, 
Kevin, the Clippers are the faves. I, I, I hear it in your voice. You like the Clippers to win the NBA championship in 2000 and what, 19-20. The 2019-20 champions, LA Clippers, right? I do, and the people here in Las Vegas who tend to know what they're talking about <laughs> like them too. I mean, it's not, it's not overwhelming, but it's not a sentence we've ever been able to say before that the LA Clippers right. are favorites to win the championship. All right, if they win it, taco time's on me. You got it? <laughs> safe travels thanks for squeezing us in kevin thank you no problem thanks for having me there he is kevin pelton espn nba writer in las vegas he was in the gym for the earthquake over the weekend and he like so many others making the clipsies the favorite to win it all the los angeles clippers makes me a little nervous i tell the truth if you've taken a few minutes to call the kirkland office of guild mortgage raise your hand not nearly enough hands are raised i'm sure I'm trying to save you guys substantial dollars on your mortgage every month with 30-year fixed mortgage rates at a two- or three-year low. Call the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. You're crazy not to call and merely find out the answer to the question. Even our own producer, Steve Dion, has called. Take five minutes and find out what a refi would mean to you and your family. 425-250-3150, or as I like to say, 425-250-CAM-CHANCELLOR. K.J. Wright. Jordan Flowers and his Kirkland Guild Mortgage team have three top 1% industry people. 425-250-3150. Remember, you don't have to start all over on your 30-year mortgage. They'll set the payoff schedule to the amount of months you're already into your loan so you don't lose any time on the payoff. You just save money. Call today, 250-3150. That's 425-250-3150. The Kirkland Office of Guild Mortgage. Unfiltered. Well, it's a blossoming story and controversy that not only has been stewing in the state of Connecticut for the last several years, but is undoubtedly going to be a major national quandary and debate if it isn't already. Transgender athletes, in this case, transgender student athletes, and whether they should be competing against the men or against the women. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline is Dan Brecklin. He's the sports editor of the Hartford Current, who's been covering this very well for the last couple of years. Dan, thanks for joining us uh, on the podcast. Tell our listeners the story of runners Selena Sewell, Andrea Yearwood, and Terry Miller, and the Title IX complaint that you've been dealing with for the last couple of years on this. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, You know, this really goes back uh, a few years for us, back to uh, now all three runners you just mentioned, they all just finished their junior seasons in high school track. These runners are all in different uh, conferences and all in different divisions of running. So they really don't run into each other uh, at all until they get to state meets. And so... Terry Miller uh, is a transgender athlete that uh, is from nearby where we are. She wasn't running her freshman year at all. She wasn't involved in uh, athletics. And Andrea Yearwood at the time uh, hadn't run until towards the end of her uh, freshman outdoor track and uh, track and field season. And her family actually came to us and said, you know, just so you know, our daughter is transgender. That's how she identifies. Um, you know, she was born, uh, 
uh, being considered a male, but she identifies as a girl. And, you know, she's a transgender athlete. Under rules in Connecticut, uh, she is allowed to run as a girl. She identifies as a girl. So she did, and, and very quickly we could see she's very talented. She's a strong runner. Um, she started winning races. The sophomore year comes around, and uh, Terry starts running in the outdoor season. And Terry was even better than Andrea. She was winning race after race uh, as a sprinter. And they, they compete against each other, uh, both transgender athletes. Terry, uh, Terry, wasn't, hearing... Terry wasn't only winning. She was winning by big margins, right? She was blowing away the yeah. field. Yeah. Yeah. She was setting records. She was setting state records uh, left and right and, you know, beating her own records. Mm-hmm. So she, uh, we started very quickly hearing whispers, that's a boy out there, that's a man, uh, she doesn't belong out there, things like that being said constantly. So we had to, we weren't even sure how to handle it uh, just because it's such a controversial issue. But when it comes down to it, they're not breaking any rules. So, uh Selena, we had heard from her mother. They live in a, you know, I would say a, a wealthier suburb of Connecticut uh, called Glastonbury. And we had heard from her mother, who I believe is a doctor, and she started a petition uh, to try to get our state's legislature to act and try to not allow transgender athletes to uh, race in Connecticut unless they had undergone some type of uh, treatment or surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that petition didn't really go anywhere. Uh, last year so this year you know the whole track and field season goes by and uh same same situation where terry and andrea were doing very well uh terry blowing away the competition for the most part terry uh i think lost one race in the, in the state open because she had dq'd uh she started a little bit early let me step in here dan so selena sewell the complaint here from the mom and the and the student is I'm not qualifying for state meets here. These transgender athletes are eating up the spots. Therefore, I'm potentially not being seen by colleges and universities in terms of next-level racing. Is that right? Sure. Right. So uh, Selena files a complaint after this season with uh, uh, U.S. Department of Education's Title IX complaint that's basically saying exactly what you just said, that uh, the only the only thing I'll tweak is that she was getting into the state open event. She just wasn't placing high enough uh, in order to qualify for the New England regional event, which is where a lot of uh, college track and, uh, and track and field coaches will go and and scout. And you know, it gives them a, a better sense of uh, who these athletes are because they're competing against some really top runners in the area. So she was sure her argument was, I'm coming in. Uh, I think it was like seventh or eighth place. If I, you know, if Andrea and Terry weren't competing here, then I would have been two right. notches higher and I would have gone on to New England. Right. Uh, Selena uh, filed it with two other athletes, student athletes from Connecticut who uh, chose not to be named. They didn't want to be identified, basically arguing the same thing that, you know, we're missing out on potential college scholarship opportunities and, you know, we're just losing out on the fact that yeah. we, we could be the number one athlete here. We could be, yeah. you know, the ones either setting a record or we could be the ones that 
uh, are taking home the title. Don't college programs, and maybe you haven't made this call yet and it's uh, an assignment for an, a future day, don't college programs and coaches look mostly at race times or is it truly that vital that everyone participate in these whatever, these these state meets that where they're seen by more coaches? It's always been our understanding that coaches will recruit and look at times specifically. Uh-huh. Uh, it really doesn't always matter. You know, you finish one, you finish two, uh, you finish six. You know, if those times were all really strong times, then, you know, the coach would be happy taking any yeah. of them, I'm sure. Yeah. So we, we have talked to a handful of coaches who have confirmed that as well. And, you know, oddly enough, our, our publisher here, his uh, son is a track and field athlete. And the very first thing he said to me, this is probably two years ago now, was that they're just going to recruit based on times. Why is his such mother causing such a problem? Right, but, right, you know, right. I think it comes down to a handful of other other topics. There. Yeah, other very, sure. very fragile topics. Is there an official NCAA policy, Dan? I, I don't even know this. Do we have transgender, and I'm sorry that I don't plead ignorance here, do we have transgender college athletes like this example allowed to compete against women in various sports? Do you know? Yeah, so it varies uh, based on the level in college. Uh, under NCAA standards, you have to have undergone a year of treatment, I believe, in order to uh, compete at that level. Uh, it was our understanding. Andrea's family has talked about this that she's um, began the process or begun the process of undergoing uh, hormonal treatment. Uh, Terry Terry's been um, a little quieter about her situation and her life, and that's you know something that we're going to accept because you know at the end of the day, these are sixteen-year-old kids or so that you know are going through something in life that. You know, nobody that I work with can understand fully. Right. You know, we should also be respectful of that. Right. So there's 50 states that are divided on this this issue, Dan. Dan Brecklin, the sports editor of the Hartford Current, is good enough to be with us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline on this very, really delicate and fragile issue that's not going away anytime soon around the country. The 50 states are divided on this issue, right, Dan? We've got some that clearly state that athletes are permitted to compete against the gender they identify with. We've got some that mm-hmm. insist that athletes participate with their birth gender, and then still others that don't seem to have a policy. I wonder what happens in those states. Is it a case-by-case basis, or don't you know the answer to that question? Uh, I, I honestly am not sure. Uh, I know that, you know, like you had said, I know Connecticut, and I think it's about 24 other states or something close to that number, that allow you to compete based on the gender that you identify with. And in Connecticut, I could tell you that that rule is based on state law, a state law that was put into place, you know, within the last five years or so uh, that, that says that, you know, you, you know, you are what you identify with. And so the CIAC, which is the governing board of high school athletics here said, okay, if, that's state law, then that's how we're going to set it up, too. And so they did uh, about three or four years ago. But as far as those other states go, I'm, I'm truly not sure. I haven't looked probably far enough into that. Let me ask you the million-dollar loaded question. Is there a correct answer? <laughs> is there is there a right answer to this? It seems to me that you can, 
and I'm going to wade into some some waters. <laughs> I'll, I'll try very delicately <laughs> to wade in the waters. I'll let you do that. All right, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. It seems, and this is not going to give you a, a, an answer, but it's going to tell you where I where I sit. It seems like that from a competitive standpoint, there's an easy answer. If we're only going to consider the competition, the spirit of being fair in competition, and that would be that athletes would need to go through some sort of hormonal therapy or whatever the surgeries are to continue the process of becoming female. But unfortunately, not everything in the world is black and white. And there are incredible emotions and incredible difficulties, as you point out, in life. And there are some things that are just more important than making sure that every playing field is level and competitive. Do I have it right? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're certainly on the right track. I mean, we've been weighing this issue for, for two or three years now, it feels like. And we go back and forth on this all the time. You know, we've, you know, doctors will tell you just about anything and everything uh, if you talk to the right doctor. So, you know, we've talked to doctors who say that absolutely uh, Terry and Andrea have a competitive advantage here. And we talked to other ones who say it really doesn't matter as much, uh, certainly at this age. Now, you know, when they're uh, fully grown adults, uh, you know, there, there is more of a difference between men and women. But at this stage in their life, it doesn't seem like they're, is that much now you also look at the race times and there's you know terry setting state records they're there they're there in front of you right dan those records and those performances are right there in black and white in front of us it's hard to ignore um and going back to what i said earlier you know at the end of the day you know you start wondering you know how or why does this truly matter because at the end of the day uh you know, yes, it's competition, but these are a bunch of high school kids yes. that are just going through uh, enough in their lives. Right. Uh, in addition to the fact that they're dealing with something that uh, plenty of adults can't fully comprehend or uh, help them through even. And, you know, I've read all the posts on social media that are just, you know, saying terrible, terrible things. And so you want to really, you know, you really feel for them. At the same time, uh, like you said, you know, if, if there's something that really matters here, it's probably the college scholarships. And when it comes down to it, they're probably recruiting based on times. So right. if you're really upset about coming in second or third or fourth place, um, you know, that that's fine. File the complaint and yeah. I guess we'll let somebody else decide on it. Yeah, I want to switch gears with you at the end here. Uh, you're so nice enough to join us, Dan Brecklin, the sports editor of the Hartford Current, who's been covering this transgender issue and controversy for the last several years. And boy, the Hartford Current, you guys have done a fabulous job. I've been reading up on it over and over. I spent many hours reading so many different stories in your publication. You're to be commended on the on the work that you guys have done on this. You know, while this is a fascinating debate that I would think is just gaining steam, it really does go back a long time. I don't know if you're old enough, Dan, but I'm old enough to remember <laughs> Dr. Dr. Renee Richards, right? Born Richard Raskin, male to female uh, sex reassignment surgery, I guess they call it, New York Supreme Court ruling allowing her to play professional tennis. She was a great doubles player on the professional tour. She played in the U.S. Open, Probably, I don't know how old she could be right now in her 80s, I would imagine. So, 
this is not a brand new story on its face. No, it, no, it's not. Um, you know, I'm probably not quite as old as you. I don't remember it as well, but uh, it, it's not. Uh, it's not a brand new story. It's just that I think this was the first time it was really having an impact here in Connecticut, and uh, maybe be based on the state records and some of the winning that was happening here. That's that'd be my guess why it's going so national. I mean, we hear from people all over the country on this issue, uh, and the fact that the Title IX um, complaint was filed. Uh, certainly, you know, I, I was casually checking ESPN.com and I was like, oh, hey, there's the story we've been reporting on for quite some time. Right. So it's always, right. you know, a little funny when you see that. Yeah. What's the next logistical chapter of this? What are you guys waiting for? What's the next story to be written in the Hartford Current? Uh, good question. We, we probably won't be weighing in, um, you know, right away or anything like that. This is a the complaint is a process that, that takes some time. I mean, I was looking through the database and there's. Just from Connecticut, uh, there's complaints that date back four or five years. I, I just don't expect anything really, honestly, to come through anytime soon. Uh, what we do have to look forward to, I suppose, is that you know the school year is going to be a couple months away, and you run into indoor track season, which starts in December. And these athletes are all going to be seniors, and I can't even imagine some of the emotion that's going to go through there now wow. because wow. it used to be, uh, you know, just some, you know, some glares at one another or uh, some, you know, rude comments that were said back and forth, but now it's just all out in the open. So that's probably wow. when we start uh, gearing up for some more of that coverage. Okay, before you run on us, let's change to, I was going to say a lighter subject. It is in a lot of ways, but for for, <laughs> for UConn Huskies fans, and, you know, I'm not a UConn Husky. Anybody who went to Syracuse, not a UConn Huskies fan. But I will say this, that we had Kevin Ollie, who's in the center of this storm that you've been covering the last few days. Uh, we had him out here in Seattle for a cup of coffee with the Seattle Supersonics. And I remembered to really liking him. Now, he played at UConn. He obviously coached there. Uh, a few years back, and there has been a lot of investigations into that program. Some decisions were made. We're penalizing a team that wasn't very good. Is that kind of the the essence of the conclusion, Dan? Yeah, that's more or less what happened. So UConn fired uh, Kevin in March 2017. Uh, what year are we in? Uh, March 2018 is when he was fired. Sorry, uh, blanking there for a second. Everything just kind of runs together these days. Uh <laughs> Kevin was fired back then. Uh, it was called Just Cause. He was fired for basically saying that the uh, school had reason to fire him. There was an NCAA investigation that began in the fall of 2017. NCAA finally released its findings uh, earlier this week, basically saying that Kevin had uh, lost some control of this program. He was mismanaging uh, in a lot of ways. He was letting uh, a video coordinator basically act as an additional coach for the team. Uh, he allowed some improper training, uh, a few other things. Now, UConn had already self-imposed some penalties on this, but the not, NCAA not, not handed paying, them. Not paying players, right, Dan? Nope, nope. Okay. Uh, there was nothing uh, found conclusively that he had been paying players. There was an allegation from a former associate coach that said uh, he had paid players, but that was not found to be the case. Um, so there, you know, I don't know that there was anything damaging enough against the university. Now they'll have to vacate uh, the records for two seasons, but UConn's really struggled the last couple 
years uh, playing under 500 basketball. So uh, I'm sure they'd be happy to uh, vacate that and actually improve the winning percentage overall. Um, <laughs> kind of put, <laughs> they'll be able to put uh, put these years behind them for sure. Uh, Kevin was given a, a three-year show cause penalty, which means that uh, he would have to prove otherwise that you know, if he wanted to coach in college basketball, which I don't think he wants to at this point, and I don't know that any programs want him to, but over the next three years, if he wanted to coach and a program wanted him, they'd have to prove that, uh, you know, none of this was his fault kind of thing in order to let him. Otherwise, he's banned basically from college basketball for three years. And that program is in a good place right now with Danny Hurley, right? The school couldn't be happier at this point. The school just moved uh yukon's men and women's basketball programs all their other sports other than football over into the big east again so they're pretty excited about that they feel good about the men's basketball program and where dan hurley has them going uh they feel like you know in the big east now they're kind of clean up and recruiting in the northeast and into new york and even some of the mid-atlantic so they they feel pretty confident going forward. Uh, it'll see. It'll be interesting to see how quickly you can turn things around because I think uh, there's a lot of internal issues as far as Kevin goes and, and the program under him. Um, you know, like I said, it, the NCAA even said that it seems like he lost some of the control of the program and wasn't monitoring things very closely. Got so. It. Got it. The, the school is happy now. I can tell you that. Dan, thank you. Uh, and terrific work, really. The Hartford Current should be praised for the way you guys have covered the transgender athlete issue. It's not going away anytime soon, either in your state or anywhere else, I would imagine. Dan Brecklin is the sports editor of the Hartford Current and good enough to join us on Mitch Unfiltered. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much, and thanks for the kind words. So there's Dan Brecklin, the sports editor of the Hartford Current. The debate and controversy is getting louder and louder nationwide. Transgender athletes, is there a solution that is fair to everyone involved? Probably not. Two weeks to go, Pebble Beach with a listener, his or her guest to stay at the Lodge, play Pebble, play Spyglass, two of the greatest courses in the world because of Tyler Hay and his Evergreen Golf Call team's enormous support of Mitch Unfiltered. When I auctioned off rounds of golf with me at Aldera the other night at Daniels, Tyler raised his hand and offered to pay all the greens fees and expenses so that more money goes to the charity. That's what we're talking about when we're dealing with Evergreen Golf Call. I am super lucky to have a partner like Tyler Hay and their group, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest, managing over $2 billion in assets. The 2018 fastest growing wealth manager named by the Puget Sound Business Journal. Tyler is one of the 40 under 40, headquartered in Bellevue, but with offices in Portland, San Francisco, and the Napa Valley. Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. It's oh, now the challenge on Morgan by Van der Graft. The boot was high in the air. VAR check is going on. Very, very high indeed from Stephanie Van der Graft. Penalty. It's Rapino against Van Feenendaal. It's 1-0. The USA won. The Netherlands nil. Helped on by Mewis to Lavelle. The game's opening up. Rose Lavelle. Lovely run. Great goal. Brilliant goal. Rose Lavelle might have won the World Cup. 
United States 2, the Netherlands 0. For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. Well, the United States women's team has done it. 2-0 over the, uh, the Netherlands in the final, successfully defending the World Cup title and the fourth overall title for the United States ladies. Alicia Rose Delgallo, the editor and founder of ProSoccerUSA.com, is in Lyon, in France, and she's with us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. Alicia, thank you for being with us all the way here in Seattle. Was this few weeks even more dominant than the experts expected from our women? I don't know if we could say it was more dominant than expected because there were really high expectations going into this tournament for the women's team. So I think that they definitely met those expectations. Um, I think in the beginning of the tournament, there was a little concern because the defense was having some struggles leading up to the tournament and friendlies. The goalkeeper was in her first major tournament and unproven. So those sorts of things. And I think those were the things that surprised people when they really stepped up in this tournament and and kind of dominated the match first and I don't know much about soccer so I'll fall backwards and Alicia you'll catch <laughs> me please and then we'll kind of graduate to all of the soap opera subplots some are barking about the foul call that set up the penalty kick for Rapino. legit debate or more anti-American sentiment that's as a result of the best team in the world becoming the villain here I don't really think it's an anti-American sentiment. I think it's just um, something that happens uh, typically in every game when there's a penalty and especially when it's not a very strong penalty or um, one that in real time might look like it was a little soft. So the issue with that one was, you know, the Netherlands player kicked her leg high, you know, almost near her head, cleated Morgan in the side, she had a big bruise on her arm from it. You could clearly see the cleat marks. And then another issue might be that Morgan fell after. So she wasn't able to continue playing the ball, could have been denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. So there are multiple things that went into it that I think is why that decision was made upon video review. Um, But we've seen this kind of outrage about penalties any time a penalty is given in games. So we've seen seen it throughout the tournament. It just, it happens. When a call doesn't go your way, when a call isn't, you know, egregious, but was still the right call, people get outraged about it. I saw some say and write that the second goal by Lavelle was a good thing to sort of dispel any controversy over the foul call, but wasn't the game played, and again, this is my my lack of soccer knowledge shining through here, wasn't the game played differently as a result of goal number one in the 61st minute? I mean, the goal number one didn't come so late that it dramatically changed maybe the approach of Netherlands. Um or so early, you know, so kind of there was plenty of time left for them. But I will say that after that goal, the United States clearly got a spark of energy and a spark of momentum. And Nether- Netherlands clearly, you know, kind of mentally looked somewhat defeated. So in that aspect, um, in a change in momentum, certainly I think there was a shift there. The voice of Alicia Rose Delgallo, the editor and founder of ProSoccerUSA.com. She's in Lyon uh, and joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. You can follow her on Twitter at OSAlicia, A-L-I-C-I-A-D. 
Alicia, the equal pay chant, the gender discrimination lawsuit against their own federation. Does all of this, all of this controversy and subplots, does it take the conversation away from the awesome accomplishment that these women had over the last few weeks and years for that matter? Um, I actually don't think it takes away. I think it adds to it. So what you're seeing is this women's national team where, you know, an awesome accomplishment, yes, it may have permeated through different sports circles, but it certainly wouldn't wouldn't have been mentioned in political debates or um, in pop culture. HBO Game of Thrones actresses wouldn't be tweeting about them. So I think all of that conversation kind of, launched the team into a different stratosphere that it perhaps wouldn't have been in. But I think in the soccer fan circle and the sports fan circle, uh, you're still admiring and talking about what happened on the field in addition to all these other topics. I think the people that are only talking about these other topics are people who wouldn't be talking about the team at all otherwise. I understand and, and kind of agree. Part of the disrespect, as I understand it, Alicia, is the scheduling of a couple of big men's international matches on the same day as the Women's World Cup final. That, to me, is blasphemy. Yeah, a lot of people actually think so. I mean, even the people that are covering the men's tournament, I I have a lot of reporter friends and colleagues and coworkers um, that were kind of covering the men's tournaments and are just, you know, they had to choose which one to go to or because they cover – Men's soccer predominantly couldn't go to the women's one, or vice versa. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense to have those three major matches, I mean, one really significant major match and, and two others on the same day. It doesn't make sense that people are having to have this debate. And it just could have been avoided is the general consensus around most of the people involved. Help me out on the equal pay issue. Mediation is forthcoming. $30 million for the women, $400 plus million for the American men. Help me understand some yeah. of the basics uh, in terms of the economic differences between the men's and women's sport. TV ratings, revenue, sponsorship deals. I think I understand that the overwhelming international differences are there between the men's and yeah. women's game, but I don't have a grasp on the differences between the not-so-successful American men and the world-dominant United States women? Well, you're not alone because, I mean, even those of us who cover the team for a month straight or on a daily basis or have written many stories about this don't have a complete grasp on it because there are so many different facets to it. There, There's so many unknowns still, um, and there, it's really hard. There's some funding and some things and revenue that are reported together men and women so it's like how do you you know how do we know we don't know everything but what we do know is that you are right there's an overwhelming difference between men's and women's game globally and the sport and when you're talking about FIFA and when you're talking about world cups um, because the men's game has been around so much longer and it's so much more advanced and we could get into that debate largely because women were banned from the sport for decades. Right. Um, but um, but when it comes to, and this is where the conversation gets convoluted because people start pulling in, you know, differences um, in revenue at the global level or FIFA level or even at the club level between the NWSL and the MLS. But what this lawsuit is about and what this conversation is about is solely the United States 
women's national team and the United States men's national team. And so when you're breaking that down, especially in the past few years, where the men have not been successful, have not been bringing in high revenues at matches, and the women have, they have been out earning the men in terms of ticket sales the past three years on average, whereas that gap used to be a lot bigger. So now the discussion becomes, you know, like, where do we go from here? And that was the conversation after the match tonight. Like, the players were saying, you know, we're, we're sick of this conversation. Everybody knows the details. Everybody knows that we are fighting for equal pay. Everybody knows that there's a gap. But the gap in pay is larger than the gap in revenue and is larger than the gap in performance. And obviously, the women outperform and right. win more titles than the men. So where do we go from here? Yeah. Alicia, should it be equal or should they bridge the – I mean, obviously, 30 million to 440 million is preposterous. Uh, Should they bridge the gap or should it be dollar for dollar, do you think? So here's the thing, though, is so now that's talking about FIFA because that's FIFA's World Cup prize. Right, right. So that's that's different. That's not part of this lawsuit. Um, they did announce, the FIFA president did announce that he is going to propose that the the prize money for the women double for the next tournament. However, the men's money is going up as well. So the gap actually grows, which is the big issue here. Yeah. Why is the gap shrinking in other places, but the prize money is growing? So, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I think it's a really complicated question. I do know that it probably is, I mean, it definitely is way too far apart where it should be. And, um, it just, it just needs to get better overall. So what now, Alicia, as you leave us, uh, what now? Ticker tape parades in New York, I understand it. Will they be yeah. Will they be invited to the White House in the wake of the controversy? And I can't imagine that some of the players would go and some not when this team strikes me as one of the most tight-knit teams I've ever seen, men or women. And then the second question before you leave me is, how will this team look different four years from now when they're going for the three-peat? Yeah, so to the first point, um, and it's going to be interesting to see because technically Donald Trump did invite them in that tweet where he tagged Megan Rapino. He said, you're invited now. I'm now inviting you win or lose. So whether an official invite comes following up on his tweet, um, you know, U.S. coach Jill Ellis said tonight, you know, she doesn't think it will. And a lot of the players, um, echoed that sentiment too. And, you know, we know where Rapino stands. We know where Alex Morgan stands. We know where Ali Krieger stands, that they wouldn't go. And it is hard to imagine that some would go and some wouldn't, because like you said, and you're 100% right, as this team is really tight knit group, but um, that will be interesting to watch moving forward. And then what was the second part of your question? Four years from now. When they go for the three-peat, how, how, how will the team look different? Will be many of the same players? Because a lot of them are, are very young. Will some move yeah. on and be, become experts and broadcasters? Or, you know, how, how different will the team look uh, the next go-around, what, in 2023? Three, 23, yeah. Uh, I think it's going to look a lot different because they had the oldest team in the tournament this year. So, you know, likely no Carly Lloyd, possibly no Megan Rapino. Um, Alex Morgan will be 34, so it'll see what, you know, she's at her peak right now, um, probably will be fine in four years, but barring any injuries. 
Um, and you're going to see these players that were just kind of showing glimpses of what they can do, chief among them Rose Lavelle, who won a bronze ball award today for her performance in the tournament. Um, players like her are going to be the next wave. And those players, most of them are top quality midfielders. So you might see a shift in where now the team is known for its strikers and its attack. And those are, you know, everybody's afraid of Alex Morgan, Tobin Heath, Megan Rapino, Kristen Press, where this next wave coming up looks like strong midfielders. So there could be a little bit of a shift in, in identity as well. Alicia Rose Delgallo, the editor and founder of ProSoccerUSA.com. If you want to read some really good coverage and you're like me, kind of a novice, I heavily recommend you check out her website at prosoccerusa.com. Also, follow her on Twitter at OSAlicia, A-L-I-C-I-A-D. Terrific stuff. Great job the last few weeks. And I really appreciate you joining us on Mitch Unfiltered. Travel safe home, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. There she is, Alicia Rose Delgallo, the editor and founder of ProSoccerUSA.com, joining us on episode 47 from France. If you're ever looking for a spot to have great pizza, a nice selection of craft beer, a comfortable place to watch sports, Zeke's Pizza all over the Puget Sound area. There's nothing quite like a nice summer's evening with a cherry bomb or a Puget Pounder and an ice-cold craft beer at one of the ubiquitous Zeke's Pizza locations, and you would be supporting a very important partner of Mitch Unfiltered that has made, in part, this podcast experience possible. If you're home and not in the mood to go out, Zeke'sPizza.com is a very easy option. No third-party delivery service. Zeke's Pizza representatives arrive right at your door. By the way, congratulations in order to the 10U Redmond Sammamish Little League All-Stars who celebrated a District 9 title at Zeke's Pizza and are on the way to the Washington State Little League Tournament. If you're ever looking for a good spot to take your youth baseball team after a big game with lots of tables and a staff that bends over backwards to to make that lunch or dinner just right for the team and the parents, Zeke's Pizza is the place for you because Zeke's Pizza is homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. So let's wander away from sports for a few minutes. How about that? And chat about what I think is a remarkable story that's been in the headlines the last several weeks. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline is Samara Freemark, a senior producer and reporter for the Into the Dark podcast. Now, this is a, a critically acclaimed investigative show that spends full seasons on one case and one topic. And season two, Samara, was dedicated to the Curtis Flower story, which has to be one of the most fascinating stories of murder, our criminal justice system, Supreme Court rulings that's come along in years and years. Share with us a synopsis of the story, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. And and I should say it's the In the Dark podcast um, from APM Reports. Yep. Uh, so this story uh, begins back in uh, 1996 when four people are, are murdered execution style at this furniture store in this small town in north central Mississippi. It happens in broad daylight, but no one sees the crime. There are no witnesses and there's very little evidence in the case. Several months later, uh, police arrest a man named Curtis Flowers. He's a, a, a young black guy who uh, worked at the store for just a couple of days earlier that summer, a couple weeks before the murders. 
and he is arrested and he's brought to trial in 1997 and he's convicted by an almost all white jury and um, he is sentenced to death. But that's really just the start of things for Curtis Flowers, because over the next decades, uh, he actually ends up being tried six times Mm -hmm. for those same murders um, because his convictions keep getting overturned on appeal. He wins a new trial. He's tried again by the same white prosecutor. And this just keeps happening. Uh, He had a couple of hung juries where the jury couldn't agree on a verdict. Um, And so over the past two decades, this has continued to happen. He keeps getting retried over and over. And um, his last conviction was in 2010. That was number six. And that's the conviction that was just uh, reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, last month. And you guys have, again, spent how long in in Mississippi putting these podcasts together? Oh, man. So we've been working on this case at this point. Um, it'll be about two years wow. uh, from the from the time, more than two years from the first time from, from wow. when we first began working on this story. Um, we were some combination of members of our team. We have a five member team and some combination of us was living in Mississippi for about a year um, back in 2018. And uh, then we, we produced the original podcast, which was 11 episodes that aired about a year ago. And then when it was announced that the Supreme Court was going to hear the case last fall, we decided to sort of reopen the season and follow the case's progression through the U.S. Supreme Court and, and report on what happened with that. And we also continued reporting on other things. We actually just put out an episode a couple of days ago with some new findings in the case. Yes, we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about the role that the Into the Dark podcast has seemingly played in all this. I think it's incredibly interesting. So Curtis Flowers on death row, four times guilty, two times hung juries, all Mm -hmm. four guilty verdicts were reversed on appeal. The United States Supreme Court ruled last week that there was racial bias on behalf of the prosecutors in picking the jury, overturned the guilty verdict, and yet this 49-year-old man remains in jail. Why, Samara? Yeah, I mean, this is one thing that was interesting to us about the story when we first started working on it was this idea that, you know, Curtis Flowers has been incarcerated either in jails or prison since 1997, a lot of that time on death row. But for a lot of that time, he actually technically has not been a convicted man because his convictions have been overturned or there was a hung jury. So he was not technically guilty, according to the law. And yet he remains incarcerated um, because you can he is he is still technically under indictment um, from that original indictment back in 1997. It's just his conviction has been overturned, which gives the, the same prosecutor who's tried him the previous six times. Uh, it gives him the option to try Curtis Flowers again for a seventh time. And so this prosecutor has to make that decision. And in the meantime, Flowers remains in jail. He he would be transferred, right, in the next few weeks from death row to a to a county jail. Did I read that correctly? Right. That's our yep. That's under our understanding of what will happen in the coming weeks. So he is he's currently in Parchman Prison, which is this very notorious prison in Mississippi. He's on death row, but in the in the next couple of weeks, he'll be transferred. Uh, probably to a county jail um, and placed in what's called pretrial detention, where he'll just await whatever happens next, um, which could, again, be another trial. Paint me a picture of this district attorney, Doug Evans. He's essentially been scolded by the United States Supreme Court. He's been scolded by the Mississippi State Supreme Court, uh, who found all kinds of misconduct and discriminatory practices. Is there any chance that he that he won't go for a seventh time and just give up, or his, are his feet 
dug in in a way that's too deep for him to to let go at this time? You know, uh, I can't I can't speak for him. We we have tried we have done everything we could to to get at that question with him and ask him, and he would not give us a straight uh, he would not give us a um, a hard and fast answer on what he planned to do with this case. I will say that the evidence in the case looks very different now um, after the work that Curtis's new lawyers have done, but also after the work that we've done on the podcast. Uh, we've talked, you know, we've looked at every piece of evidence in the case, and a lot of it, uh, really, once it was looked at closely, kind of fell apart. Um, and so we saw multiple witnesses recanting to us, um, you know, the star witness in the pa- the previous four trials was this jailhouse informant named Odell Hallman, who said that Curtis Flowers confessed to him. His testimony was the only piece of direct evidence against Flowers. And he told us that uh, that testimony was a lie, that Curtis had never confessed to him. So Odell Hallman is not going to be a very good witness for the state, I think, going forward. And then, you know, just recently, we we talked to probably the next most powerful witness, whose name was Clemmie Fleming. She was the witness who placed Curtis closest to the store on the day of the murder. She's testified in six trials. She saw him running near the store on that morning. And she just last week um, told us that actually she had no idea what day it was that she saw wow. Curtis Flowers, that she had seen Curtis Flowers near the store at some point, but she had never known what day it was and that she had felt pressured wow. to tell law enforcement that it, that it happened on the day of the Tardy murders. The voice of Samara Freemark, the senior producer and reporter, Into the Dark podcast, which has gotten rave reviews and played. We're going to get there. A significant role. There are so many layers that are interesting about this that I want to discuss with you. You haven't even mentioned yet, Samara, the little-known Mississippi law that either you or somebody uncovered, which I just, you know, from afar out here in Seattle, I can't believe that no one uncovered this in all the years that we're going through all these trials and, and appeals. It says any person having been twice tried on an indictment charging a capital offense wherein each trial has resulted in a failure of the jury to agree upon his guilt or innocence, shall be entitled to bail in an amount to be set by the court. This looks fairly fairly simple and clear that those two times have happened and he should have been uh, you know, available to be set free on bail. No or yes? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a weird little law, and I actually don't know the history of it because it seems uh, it, it, it only applies to people under capital conviction. So... It's basically saying if you're charged with the most serious of crimes right, and right. you have these two mistrials, you, uh, you're eligible for bail, which I'd be curious to know who that law was written for. It certainly wasn't written for Curtis Flowers. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it seems very clear that that law certainly should have applied after trial five for Curtis because trial four and trial five were both mistrials. And so certainly that law seems like it should have applied back in 2000 you know, 2010, 2009, um, when they were considering a, a, a trial uh, six. Yeah. The question here, I think, is given that there has been yet another trial in between the mistrials, so trials four and five were mistrials, trial six was a conviction, does the law still apply? And we will, we will see how a judge rules on that. That'll be up to the local judge to decide how he interprets that law. So I don't know much about the law and the process. The closest I've come is I'm the son. I am the son of an attorney. And I always thought that the voir dire process of picking juries, that peremptory challenges can be used by attorneys 
for any reason, and they don't have to answer questions as to why. Now, what the Supreme Court ruled last week is there, there were there were racially motivated decisions by this district attorney as to who was going to be picked for the jurors. Since 1980, it's been uncon- unconstitutional, I read, to exclude potential jurors based on gender or race, and yet it feels mm-hmm. like every day in courts throughout the country, defense attorneys use gender and race trying to construct juries in the manner that's most beneficial to their clients, and prosecutors uh, do the same that gives them the greatest chance of conviction. So how do we differentiate between what seems to happen every day and what the Supreme Court ruled in this case? A lot of the appeals, including the most recent one, have been based on this question of what was going on in jury selection and whether, like you said, the prosecutor was discriminating against black potential jurors, which you're not allowed to do. That's unconstitutional. Um, but the the tricky thing, of course, is how can you tell? Like, how do you how do you peer into the mind of a prosecutor and and figure out like did he strike that potential juror for some valid reason or because that juror was black? Um, and he doesn't and so have to, and, he, and he doesn't and he doesn't have to tell, right? The attorney doesn't have to. tell. Well, he he generally doesn't have to tell. But the way this works is in the courtroom. If the if the defense attorney, for example, sees that the prosecutor is striking black person after black person, he can issue a Batson challenge. He can say basically time out. Um, I think he is he's struck five black people in a row. I think there's a clear pattern. I think he's striking these people because they're black. And right. at that point, the judge will step in and say, hey, prosecutor, why did you strike those? People? Did that happen? And the prosecutor will have to. Yes. So in trial six, exactly. The defense called for a Batson challenge and said, look, I think the prosecutor is striking these people because they're black. But the prosecutor said, no, I struck this woman because of X reason. I struck this man because of Y reason. And the judge heard those reasons and said, "Okay, those sound okay." Now, what the Supreme Court did was they looked at uh, they looked at those reasons, they interrogated those reasons, and they also looked at Doug Evans, the prosecutor's long history over all six of Curtis Flowers' trials of striking black potential jurors from the jury. And they looked at what had happened over all of these past trials as well. And they said, if you look at all of that, you can tell that there's a pattern here. You can tell that those reasons were just pretenses. They were just pretexts. Um, He was just basically making up the reasons as an excuse to strike this one black juror. Um, and so that's why they wow. they ruled that the Constitution had been violated in this case. So the Supreme Court vote was what seven two, in favor seven of, two. That's right. In favor of throwing out the condition. Tell everybody who one of the justices, one of the two justices, that was dissenting in this vote. So uh, the dissents were from Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, uh, and Justice Thomas wrote the dissent in this case. Um, I would say it was a very fiery dissent, um, very impassioned. He 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 went over the facts of the case and the crime and and you know this is this is a really horrible crime you know four people were killed they were killed in a really brutal way um, it was senseless and terrible and the victims' families have suffered tremendously so he he went into the details of that and then he just blasted the court for having even heard this case in the first place um, he said like this prosecutor just did what any prosecutor would have done this case has been tainted by the media. Um, the titillating media, um, and maybe the court was taking it just to, you know, look good politically, basically. Do you believe that the prosecutors did just exactly what any other prosecutor would have done? Well, I would say that three separate courts, the, you know, Doug Evans has been found to have violated the Constitution in exactly this way by a local judge, by the Mississippi 
state Supreme Court yeah. and by the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Not many prosecutors have, have that record. Right. Um, so it certainly seems like an outlier to me. All right, then take a best guess tomorrow as we conclude here with Samara Freemark, the senior producer and reporter, Into the Dark podcast on this, I think, fascinating Curtis Flower story and the story of really the American judicial system, criminal judicial system. What's going to happen next? Give us a, you know, look into your crystal ball. Ooh. You know, we, oh, we, we, predict, we predict sports events on this podcast all, oh, all the time. So you get your shot. You don't have to, you don't have to predict well, what's going to happen in NBA free agency, but you've got to predict what's going to happen. I would rather do yeah. that, I think. Um, you know, who can tell? I will say that from Doug Evans' perspective, I don't see a big difference between trying a case seven times and trying it six times, which he's already done. That said, he does have the option of turning it over to the attorney general's office. And um, that's something that the U.S. Supreme Court justices brought up. Uh, I think that is something that could could definitely that's definitely a possibility yeah but he could have done he could have done that a long he could have done that a long time ago right that's true you're trying to get me to commit on something i'm just not (laughs) is he is he he running for re-election or what's his status he is yeah he's uh he's up for re-election this fall and he's running unopposed so he will be district attorney of the district uh for the next four years and he's well liked in that area since you guys live there for a year well, I think I think people's impressions of him really split along racial lines in the area. Um, you know, this this district is um, it's about half black, half white, a little bit more white than black, right. but it's you know it's a very racially mixed area, and I think there is there is a big difference um, depending on whether you're black or white and how you see the Curtis Flowers case and how you see the prosecutor. Super, super interesting. What great work you and your team did. Into the Dark podcast, critically acclaimed investigative show. Check them out everywhere where podcasts can be heard, including ours, which can be heard in the same places. Samara Freemark, the senior producer and reporter, Into the Dark podcast. Thank you, Samara. Thank Th- you so much for having me. That it was, was great fun. To talk to you. That was fun. I appreciate you having uh, be- being on with us. Y- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great to talk to you. And I'm going to start listening to you. I like sports. I like sports podcasts. So I'm going to I'm going to subscribe. Thank you, Samara. All right. Thanks so much. Unfiltered. George backing up. Another doesn't want to pick. Dame going for the win. A three-pointer for the game. Yeah! My eyes don't deceive, so I The final segment of episode number 47, my friend Brian Wheeler, who also happens to be the voice of the Portland Trailblazers and one of the great voices in the NBA. By the way, I haven't thanked you properly on air yet on this episode of Mitch and Wheels Unfiltered for the uh, the playoff tickets. Brian Wheeler, oh, yes. Brian Wheeler sent me and three of my favorite people Actually, my son and two of his teammates, when we went down to Portland for a baseball tournament earlier, you sent me to the Denver Nuggets-Portland Trailblazers. What game would it have been? Game four? That was game, uh, that was game three. Game three. Uh, the, game that, the game that seemed like it would never end. That's right. In fact, I just got back. It's great. It's, uh, <laughs> it was four. You sent me to a four-overtime. I went to the four-overtime thriller, and I said to you, I remember saying to you this in either a text or on the phone, 
How many people can say they were at the over, what was it, the the six or seven overtime game between UConn and Syracuse in the Garden, and then many, many, many years later, also in attendance for the Denver Nuggets-Portland Trailblazers four-overtime game in the NBA playoffs? How about that? Am I the only guy on the earth that was in both buildings, Wheels? You certainly be less people than you called to try to host the show before you got to me. <laughs> I'm sure of that. I'm sure of that. Do we love our United States women? Do we love our World Cup champions? Do we love Megan Rapino and the way she's outspoken and how the women want the same amount of money? They want the same compensation. They want to be they want to be equally paid as the lousy men's team that we have every four years. It never gets out of its own way. Hardly sometimes doesn't even qualify for the World Cup. Do we love our United States women winning another World Cup, Wheels? Listen, I would follow uh, Alex Morgan anywhere she wants to go, that's for sure. And, uh, and, and she's a terrific talent that makes it even more inspiring. And, you know, Megan Rapinoe, of course, has, uh, has Portland ties, as you may, as you may know. So it's, uh, it's one of those situations where I think they are a great story. They are fun to watch. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, some, sometimes will qualify things by saying, well, but it's, but it's women. I tell you what, there's a lot of women that uh, are doing some pretty good things in athletics these days. And no better example of that than uh, the Women's World Cup team back-to-back World Cup champs four times in the history of U.S. women's soccer have uh, the U.S. women won the World Cup, and that uh, that says a lot about how far they have brought soccer in America. And uh, it doesn't matter. I, I can't. I don't think anybody, if they really are patriotic and they really love the sport, I don't think anybody would uh, put a qualifier on whether it's the women or the men. I mean, right. congratulations to uh, these women for being able to accomplish something as great as they did uh, with uh, back-to-back championships. One of the other stories of the weekend wheels in the world of sports, in the world world of life in the United States, was the the earthquakes, the two earthquakes in in California, that uh, the effects were fe- were felt all the way into Las Vegas, where the summer league was going on. I've I spoken to a lot of people that were in that building in Las Vegas and were really fearful. It re- kind of reminded me of the uh, first earthquakes that I ever experience which were here in Seattle I can remember three actually three sizable earthquakes one of which when I came to town no one would invite me anywhere and so and and the only guy that would speak to me was was the guy that's on the phone with me right now Brian Wheeler and by the way life comes full circle because Brian's the only one left that will speak to me uh, here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, So but I recall that you were like come on Mitch I'll tell you what I've got a buddy named Rick Turner who's having a little get-together, uh, a little kind of bachelor party get-together. Where was it? Kachina, Kachina. On, yes, on, yes. on one of the first weekends, and I can recall, being here in the Pacific North. It must have been early 1995. And, and Wheels, of course, I did what Wheels told me to do, except put his name in the title of the future morning show. Uh, <laughs> and Wheels said, come on, you're going to come with me. You're going to meet some new people. Uh, you're going to meet a hell of a guy in Rick Turner. You're going to come. He'll be fine with it. You're going to come to the to the party. And I remember going to Kachina Kachina, and about halfway through, I look up and there was bicycles that were hanging. I I don't. There was a bicycle hanging from the 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 ceiling as decoration, and it was swinging back and forth. And I said, I'm I'm in the middle of an earthquake. This is what wheels. This is what wheels did. He 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 put this whole thing together. He. he did. <laughs> He took me to Kachina Kachina for an earthquake and there's going to be a bike that's going to fall on my head. And that's the way this is going to end. 
what do you recall of that earthquake and the earthquakes that you you remember here in the Pacific Northwest? Well, I recall also that you you were smart enough to decline an invitation, uh, Rick. Uh, and I think I can say this because it's it's uh, it's long past the point where any of us can get in trouble for this, probably. But <laughs> Rick, Rick, the great Kevin Calabro, and myself were headed out to it was either my car or Rick's car to partake in um, something that's legal in most cities these days today. <laughs> it was not legal back then. I think I may have invited you, so that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll pass. And I just remember that it felt like a, a Cheech and Chong movie because we had the windows up, and uh, all of a sudden it was very hard to see anywhere. So between the effects of that and then the earthquake, I thought the world maybe was coming to an end as well. And I said, well, if i got to go, I guess uh, you know this is one way. You know, i got friends around me. I've, uh, you know, kind of feeling happy about everything all of a sudden. And uh, so maybe I didn't even realize the magnitude of what potentially was happening because, uh, I mean, I, I was I was young enough to experience the uh, well, I'm old enough now, but I was young at the time to experience the very first bad earthquake that uh, that California ever had back in 1971. I was nine years old at the time. Oh. And uh, people thought that was maybe going to bring an end to California, but it was kind of the first of the many, many big ones over the years, but it's still recalled as maybe the biggest. I don't know if anything has surpassed that to this point in time. So I had experienced an earthquake before, but never in Seattle. So it was very odd to find, you know, to find uh, that happening there. But I kind of knew, and I remember Jay Leno making a joke about the fact that what do they tell you to do in an earthquake? You know, stand under a doorway or something. So he said, so who are going to be survivors in an earthquake? Transients, bums, people that uh, make their living pretty much standing in doorways. And so, and, and it, it did seem like an odd thing that to, uh, to get you advice about how to survive an earthquake but so i'm not sure being in an open restaurant that was the best place for any of us to be but uh, fortunately uh, i don't think there was any major damage done but uh, we all kind of uh, found out that it wasn't just a good night of drinking that we were experiencing it was uh, it was a little bit of mother nature coming back to give us uh, uh, give us a scare that we would not normally get i'm trying to remember now being invited are you sure you invited me out to the car and i declined i think i did yes i think yeah, i did yeah. uh because, I'm, I'm sure I did. It I? was because, probably uh, because I thought you were setting. I thought everybody was setting me up. You know, everybody <laughs> wanted me to hell out of Seattle. I mean, it's true. I, I, I came to Seattle, and those first few weeks or months, I thought, okay, th- th- this, th- there is no chance I'm going to last more than about, <laughs> about, I don't know, 16 weeks. I gave myself about 16 weeks, and I probably thought when you invited me out to the car that this was just some sort of a, okay, he's going to have a photographer laying in the weeds. He's going to jump out, take a picture of me, and get me in trouble. This is the Wheels really, he's, he's befriended me, but he really wants this show badly. He wants it back. He, it was unfairly kind of wrestled away from him, and let's just get this guy back to the East Coast uh, some way, somehow, and then we can have – Wheels, what was it called? What was the midday version? It wasn't Wheels After Work. What was it called? Uh, it was Wheels uh, Wheels at Work, and then once uh, <laughs> once uh, I came back on the air while you had the midday show anchored and I came back at night, then it was Wheels After Work. So it was kind of a, a versatile title. It could kind of uh, be whatever it needed to be at the time. But, uh, but uh, yes, it was uh, – uh, and and uh, I should bring you. We we actually have hats that got made when uh, that show made an appearance here in Portland. I think I still have a few, so I'll bring you a hat next time. I'll take next a hat. I, I I'll see you. Yeah, yeah I'll take a hat because you know he's, you know he's a good hat. I'll Especially swap. as we get older, you know we need to cover up some gray and things like yeah, that. So, yeah, yeah, I'll swap you a uh, a Mitch and Wheels unfiltered. I got to apologize that our hats don't say Mitch and Wheels unfiltered. 
They all, they oh, that's all... okay. We can always we can always add the and in fact <laughs> probably looks better if it just is like an and wheels looks like it's kind of shoved in there like in the middle of, of every everything like it's a, like it wasn't supposed to be there. We just kind of crammed it in last minute. All right, a couple of last things before you have to name the show. You have to pick an athlete to name the show, and we'll finish that way. Uh, two things: Do you have any cocoa fever? Do you have any cocoa golf fever? The fifteen-year-old. You know, I, I grew up as a little boy playing tennis. I was a tennis player as a little kid. And not sure I knew that. Not sure uh, I knew yeah, that. Yeah, as a little, little, little guy, I played tennis. A lot of tennis. I even played competitive tennis. And this Coco Golf, 15 years old. 15 years old from Delray Beach, Florida, not far from where I come, um, is not only... In Wimbledon, she's beating the likes of Venus Williams. I think she's won three matches. She's going to play on the Monday uh, this week in the in the round of 16. Fit, wheels, 15 years old. Have you followed? Well, what what is the age? Uh, I mean, how do you how do you? Uh, I mean, is there is an age uh, limit that you have to get to to be allowed to get into something as serious as Wimbledon? I mean, or you just have to win enough tournaments, uh, regardless of age, to to qualify to be there. She, I, I don't know if there, I don't think there's an age requirement. I know that she went through a qualifying tournament because she wasn't ranked high enough in the world to get an invite to play in the main draw. I think she has played in the junior draw and won a lot of the junior draws, but she won a qualifying event just to get herself into a first-round match with her idol, Venus Williams, who, who she dispatches of in straight sets and now has made it to the second week in Wimbledon. I, I just think it's a story that, that needs to be uh, celebrated. It's exciting. Her parents are excited. The family's excited. And just to watch, a, I think the, the need for good American tennis players is obviously critical on the men's side. We've had a lot of American great players on the, on the women's side. But just another in the long line of great American players, it seems, is 15-year-old Coco. And then this week marks, I know you're a baseball guy because you and I, we we, uh, we experienced together the thrill of 1995 here in the Pacific Northwest. What does the All-Star Game and the Home Run Derby do, if anything, for you this week? Does it mean anything to you? Well, considering I'm a Dodger fan and they're having such a terrific season, uh, it's nice to uh, to see them represented in the uh, in the All-Star Game and so forth. And I'm hoping that maybe the third time will be the charm. They'll get back to the World Series and maybe actually uh, win this time around. Because, you know, the way that I always uh, made my friends – that were not L.A. fans uh, when I was growing up uh, liking the Lakers at the time. Uh, don't like them quite as much now, but at the time, <laughs> when the Lakers would win a championship and I was living in Chicago at the time, I would say to my friends, now, all next season, when you say to me, uh, when are the Lakers coming to town to play the Bulls? I'm going to say, who? And you say, the Lakers. When are the Lakers coming? Oh, you mean the world champions when they're coming to town? Yes. I wouldn't, they would have to say world champions, or I would not acknowledge uh, their question for the whole season, all the way up until the next world champion would be crowned. So I've been waiting for the Dodgers to get the job done so I can say the same thing about them, and they keep uh, disappointing me in the World Series. So I'm certainly following what the Dodgers are doing and, and the great uh, season that Cody Bellinger is having. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm just afraid that something may not go right in the second half of the season here. But because of what they're doing I'm, I'm obviously following baseball very very closely that's okay. for sure all right will you watch the home run derby yes i will uh, because uh, jack peterson of the dodgers will be uh, will oh, be geez. in it uh, his, his swing always seems to be always seems to be going for a home run so i'll watch it probably for that for that reason because at least the dodgers will have a representative okay you know the home run derby is kind of one of those things and i and i went to the home run derby for many many years in a row i, I kind of established a 
a boys trip with my sons, like the way I had with my dad. You remember the the trip that I yeah, had with my sure. dad? Yeah. So I decided years and years ago to try to to try to establish a tradition, an annual tradition with the boys. And so we went to all-star games because at the beginning, when they were really, really young, they loved baseball more than anything. Now it's all about the NBA. And we found ourselves at the NBA all-star game in Los Angeles, what, a year or so ago. So mm-hmm. I, I went to the home run derby and the boys and I went to, we loved it, we enjoyed it. But it is one of those things that even with the great selection of participants, don't they have – isn't Yelich perform? I don't know who's performing. I, I'm I'm going to make this up now. Uh, I think that uh, uh, Vladimir Guerrero's kids in it. It's one of those things that you start to watch, kind of like the NBA slam dunk contest. You start to watch, and about five minutes or ten minutes into it, or twenty minutes into it, you're you're questioning yourself. Okay, now what what did I think was a good idea about watching a home run? <laughs> well, because I think like like Cody Bellinger, for instance, uh, having a great season, but he doesn't want to be in the in the home run derby because he said when he was in it right. a couple of years ago, he thought it affected his swing the whole rest of the season. He was uppercutting and trying to hit too many homers, and it messed everything up. So I think, uh, yeah, it's one of these things where once guys have been in the thing the first time around, although it's a million dollars to the winning winning guy, so from oh, that standpoint, yeah. you know, it's not exactly, uh, you know, I'm sure that baseball has done what it, what it can to make it attractive to be in in the derby but uh, but you know for these guys maybe a million dollars is, is, is chump change for some of them but but I, I still think that's a pretty good prize all things considered but you're right I think uh, the slam dunk competition in the NBA has kind of become something for the young guys trying to make a name for themselves but uh, you know we don't have the days anymore when uh, Michael Jordan's going up against Dominique or Dr. J is in it it's just not the same big names in, in any of these contests in any of the sports on, on all-star weekend that it used to be okay we're finished how did it go how did you like episode 40 how'd you like co-hosting mitch and wheels and mitch let's go back to wheels and mitch (laughs) unfiltered did you have fun would you do it again i've already started to put the feelers out to about 60 or 65 of my favorite friends for an upcoming episode and they've already started to decline can we have you back before you name the episode after a famous 47 can we have you back well, absolutely, and, and I, I would never, I would never profess that it would ever be right to be Wheels and Mitch. I would, I, I would not step in front of you. I was, I, I just kind of wanted to maybe be a step or two behind you, so that I was in your shadow but still being seen. I think it's kind of the way that I, I envisioned it. But uh, uh, so, yes, I mean, absolutely. It's, uh, it was felt like, felt like old times. Felt like being back in the uh, back in the mid days again. And uh, so, uh, yes, anytime, anytime you need somebody, anytime uh, the the seventy five or eighty folks that uh, you, you check with. Uh, ahead of me can't do it uh holiday weekend maybe such as this probably part of the problem uh you know i'm I'm only too happy to to step in when needed you are the only person i called wheels oh my goodness i'm I'm honored i'm honored i I probably shouldn't show my my hand but you were the only person you were the only person i called i I alerted your buddy hotshot scott that he's being placed in the penalty box that i'm calling brian wheeler i want i want wheels i want to feel what it like what, what it felt like so many years ago with wheels to co-host Wheels and Mitch Unfiltered in episode 47. All right, you've got you've got Jack Morris, you've got Tom Glavin, you've got Mel Blount. You can pick somebody that I haven't I haven't I haven't mentioned. You can go to Ron Valone. You want to go to Jesse Orosco, you can go to Jesse Orosco. <laughs> who 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 gets the honor from Wheels? for episode 47. Well, considering that um, uh, the Steelers uh, one year did beat uh, my Rams in the Super Bowl, so that probably disqualifies uh, them. I think Jack Morris was a standout performer for 
two teams in baseball, so I think that's not always easy to do, uh, both the Tigers and the Twins, and I thought he was a tremendous uh, competitor. So, uh, And Tommy Glavin was too, but uh, you know, I wasn't really a Braves fan since they were in the National League as well. So uh, being an American League guy, as uh, Morris was, didn't really ever do anything to upset any of the teams that I rooted for. So <laughs> I, I'll admire him from afar. I, I thought his mustache was, was pretty clever too, so, uh, so I'll hand it to Jack Morris. I love you, Wheels. Thanks for doing this. Mitch, anytime, my friend. Love you, too. All right. Episode 47 is in the books.